This podcast is brought to you by Doghouse Systems. Get the best performance for your value with these high-end, powerful gaming computers. Whether you need a lightweight laptop or a robust desktop, Doghouse has you covered. Go to www.doghousesystems.com to see which system fits your needs today. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We can confirm. Ignition. Liftoff. Liftoff. Welcome to Weekend Confirmed, everybody. My name is Garnet Lee. Have a most awesome 201st show to bring you on this uh, 2014 January morning, where the Dow is tanking merrily away. <laughs> well, that, well, that's a grim way to start us off. <laughs> hey, you know, there's a there's a if you're into trading at all, a very quick anecdote. There's a uh, long running statistical history that how the Dow performs in the first three days of January predicts how it perform over January and how it performs over January predicts how it perform over the year. Seriously? Yeah, like 86% of the time. Wow. So so we're already fucked for 2014 is what you're saying. <laughs> unless you think you're on the 14% side, which could be a good thing. <laughs> hey, there is uh, flying in our co-pilot seat today, Mr. Ozzy Mejia. Uh, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm going to be playing the role of the bright-eyed optimist today because Jeff Kanata is not with us today. So. Yeah, so uh, as many of you have heard, Jeff has a great play coming up. If you are here in the Los Angeles metro area, you should uh, get into uh, seeing it over the coming three weekends. Opens tonight. Um, however, they had a long, long tech rehearsal. And so he was up super late and it's opening night. So we let him off the hook. How do you like that? And then around the table, we have a, a couple of great guests today from Sega, who has been gracious enough to support us over this uh, month, made this month happen for us, Mr. Ethan Einhorn. Now, before you groan too much about him being just a publisher guy, I will have you know that his What You've Been Playing list is extensive, with, without doubt, the most uh, filled and packed list. So uh, Ethan is not only Impressive. here to uh, talk a little bit about what they do, but he's going to carry the show for us. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Garnet. Yeah, it's great to be on the show, and uh, really what I want to do more than anything is talk games. So, yeah. Yeah, it's Love good, it. good to have gamer folks in the industry. And then at, at the end of the table, my uh, alumnus from the uh, 1UP era, Matt Chandernay, now with Area 5. Hello. I hear you guys have some video project thing coming up that might yeah, be interesting. It's, it's this little deal. thing, yeah, it's uh, we just decided to throw it out there. It's this random, I don't know what it's about or anything, so, you know. It's going to be a, a, a study of people walking around the tenderloin right yes exactly and if those who don't know the tenderloin is a particularly delightful district in san francisco it's very enjoyable and very game related hi, what hi there sir what what mobile games do you play while you're sitting here on the stoop <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's good to know what's out in san francisco already because gdc is coming up in a few months and can't remember the last time i've been so Really, you should always be insane. Well, I'll take you on a tour of the Tenderloin. It'll be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> really, all you need to do is get off at the Powell Station and come up yep. the stairs, and you, you've got the whole thing right there, and then you just walk back, back into the Westfield Center, and I've had plenty of fun with it. All right, enough kidding around. We have lots to talk about, and uh, I thought that the right way to go about this this week, because the big story that has been igniting the tubes of the internet has been around YouTube, Machinima, Microsoft and Electronic Arts, and some sort of unholy alliance that uh, creates pay for YouTube providers who feature product within their within their shows. Now, here's the scoop on this. Microsoft, through an agreement with Machinima, has been paying content creators who featured the Xbox One 
in their videos. The deal was if you had uh, 30 seconds of Xbox One gameplay footage and verbally mentioned that you were playing on the Xbox One, you could get a bump of $3 per thousand or CPM, a $3 CPM, right. a $3 bump per thousand views that you get. Um, and then as that came out, uh, it was referred to as a typical sort of marketing partnership. We learned then later that EA apparently does not only the same thing, but has a massive infrastructure in place. And to, a higher uh, CPM. To, and a higher <laughs> CPM as well. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so I want to throw this out there because this is a very important conversation to have. I feel like uh, to sort of start the the ball rolling here that – it's great. Number one, this needed to come out and it needed to be in front of people because yes. what, what did happen here is that uh, these YouTube content providers, and I think this is the story has come up in the past before. I think it was over Need for Speed. Yeah. Uh, these YouTube content providers are, are not folks who have been uh, trained and or brought into the media business. And you know, I always shy away from using journalists because, a lot of, because most of what we do is not journalism by the exactly. by having been in school definition of journalism. Right, right. right. <laughs> but we do try to adhere to some, some journalistic standards. That and, whole basic integrity thing. Right. And, and I want to say that I think that for the creators, I, I want to give the creators the benefit of the doubt on this first time in that I feel like they weren't educated enough in what they that they're doing what they they're doing what they wanted to do out of passion yeah. they're not doing it because they've been trained how to do it and because they're doing it for a media outlet right they're going online and making videos about games because they freaking love games which right. is awesome and when someone comes to them and says hey dude you're making these awesome videos you're gonna make these videos this way anyway how would you like to make some extra money when they're already not you know scrimping to get by they're gonna say yes it definitely and when you don't look too far into it and i you know i think a lot of us could put ourselves in that situation where it's just like oh at first blush this doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with this is there it really takes like kind of a next leap of logic to really understand what you're getting involved with in that kind of situation and that Absolutely. you're you're compromising what you're putting out there creatively you're taking money to do somebody else's work which there's nothing wrong with that that's how a lot of businesses out there make their money purely. You know, like I, our company, Area 5, is a video production company. We take people's money to make videos for them. But the relationship is clear. And yep. I think that's where the dividing integrity line is here is that people weren't informed. The viewers weren't informed that this was what was going on. And I, and I think that a lot of that comes from... I guess the right word would be savvy marketers at Microsoft. <laughs> yep. and, and I say that like, like that because it makes me cringe a little bit. But <laughs> or it, even uh, stealth marketing. Because no, would, would you, yeah. Let me finish. Savvy, savvy because I think they knew they could take advantage of the situation. Exactly. Savvy because I think they knew that for a short window of time here, they could make an offer like this and that the people who would be doing the videos wouldn't really know better yet. Yep. And that they would do these videos and that they would get the – uh, product placement that they wanted without having to adhere to the rules and that they yep. had it in there. I mean, keep in mind, Machinima even shows that, by the way, it shows in the contract here that you're supposed to do this. Right. But how many, you know, look, how many times have you clicked through those? Especially, you've got to figure it's, it's probably some sort of online sign up mm -hmm. where it's like you read this boilerplate stuff, you read like the first three lines, you're like, I've seen this shit a million times. Scroll yep. down, agree, scroll down, agree, click, let's go. And then right. you didn't read the fine print. <clears throat> exactly. Yep. So the good news is, then coming out of this, Clearly, we're going to have a cleanup of that market. Yes. Clearly, this is going to have to be cleaned up, that all of these content providers are going to now be able to uh, do these sort of promotional videos, but be upfront about it. So where does that leave them? How, how responsive do you think the audience will be now to, you know, 
Talbor 37 and his destiny video <laughs> who starts out at the beginning of the, of the video and says, Hey everybody got a great destiny video showing, uh, coming up for you. Just want to let you know that Activision is sponsoring today's show and they're, uh, paying me or they don't they, they think sponsoring probably satisfies yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So sponsoring today's show and that they provided this and that, you know, uh, this is a Activision sponsored show. Honestly, like their, their viewers, I don't think they'll care. I don't think is uh, that that's what I don't get about this is that like as long as the content is entertaining, if the people are upfront about it and the viewers want the content, they're not going to care. They're going to say good for you for getting paid for this. I actually still enjoy this show. They have an audience that's already established. And yeah, so that right. audience is listening to that specific voice. Right. They already trust that voice. Exactly. But it does make it a little harder to grow that audience if like the pitchforks are out on places like Reddit <laughs> or on the place like NeoCab. Yes. Like because they're always going to be watching that content with like an air of suspicion and they're not shy about airing out that suspicion. Yeah, that's totally true too. The other problem I see is it can make the conversation turn a bit towards the negative because mm. Intrinsically, what you'll trust more than are the people that are more negative because you know mm. they're definitely not being paid. I didn't even consider that. That's a good point. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, I wonder if uh, la- that line of thinking, if we will then approach, you know, we have a problem with snark in games media already. Mm-hmm. You know, will that just make it worse? Well, one thing I think that counterbalances is some comes from the sort of content we're talking about because this isn't really editorial content. Mm. Most of it is just gameplay footage. Most of it is I'm streaming game. Right. And I'm streaming game is pretty transparent because <laughs> I'm, you're seeing what you're seeing. So so even if the person who is hosting the channel decides to not show that Colonial Marines is not the game that you saw in the primo in the promo <laughs> right. video. Right. Sorry to pick a Sega title. There was really just one that came to mind. Uh, you know, it, it's impossible to hide it. It's right, right there in front of your face. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be what it's going to be. Yep. And and I think that there is that transparency. That really is the core of what people love about video streaming. You know, right. it's like, like this is the game. Enough of some guy or gal telling me, oh, you're going to love game X. Just show me the damn thing. Yeah. Just show me the game and let me play it. Right. Uh, I think that as we look at editorial content, that's really the piece that those of us in this side of the business have to think about is, you know, the days of us just writing 800 word previews and having them be interesting sailed a long time ago. The thing to do is that, you know, look, I've been doing this for well over a decade. Hopefully I have an eye and an ability (laughs) to articulate some good criticism. And that's where, you know, I need to be there and and out front with what's happening and showing people the games, not, not trying to uh, tell them a story about, let me tell you about what I saw last week. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, as things go on, just everybody out there who develops games and publishes games realize that you need video for everything that you do and that you need to hire video production companies <laughs> to make it for you. <laughs> nice, especially professional video provided by Area 5. Yeah, it's worked out great for everybody who's used it, too. So the yeah, good there point. You go. There you go. The, the Forza stuff, amazing. Oh, thank you. You guys have done really great work. Yeah, we did that really. We did that a long time ago. They the That was a really fun project. That was for not the most recent Forza game but the one before that good stuff you know this is this is like hits into the heart of where media business has been for a long time even at one up we always struggled with this with the whole uh how much does endemic advertising endemic being within the field that you're covering advertising influence editorial and we were very staunch about internally about it not being you know it's church and state have to be separated constantly have to be separated but as long as you have that there 
of course, a, an intelligent audience is always going to question things. And, intelli- and you should. The intelligent audience should sit there and exactly. question these things. It would be really uh, a bad thing to just take it as, uh, as oh, I'm not going to ever question this. Case in point, I think this has been long enough now that I won't uh, burn any bridges by telling this story. Right. Not long after we were purchased by UGO, this went back at 1UP, not long, long after 1UP was purchased by UGO, the, uh, the, CEO, the then CEO of UGO, I forget his name. Do you remember this meeting? Uh, I I remember the meeting where we went in for the Bob's meeting, you know, the Bob's a la. Okay. So maybe this was after the Bob's. It was after the Bob's. Yeah, this was after after the the layoffs because he came down to talk to us. Then I wasn't there because I was laid off. (laughs) (laughs) He came down to talk to us about what the new one up was going to look like. Okay. So. Oh, God. Now, keep in mind, UGO was was a marketing built platform. Yeah. So really what UGO was was a bunch of uh, Madison Street or Madison Avenue advertisers and marketers who knew how to get money in for advertising going out and getting a bunch of affiliate sites who they could then right. sell those space into they were so they were they were building themselves a place to sell what they knew they could sell yeah um he comes in and explains to us how uh, one up's going to be positioned and very quickly starts to uh very soft shoed sell a picture of advertorial and if, if you haven't seen editorial before, basically these are the pages within the newspaper that you used to see where yeah. it looks like a newspaper story. But if you read the print at the top, it's like the following is an advertisement for Gerber baby food or whatever it might be. Right. <laughs> uh, and needless to say, as that picture started to paint itself, those of us around the table were pretty frustrated. I'm sure you started to get the kind of that sinking feeling that like, oh, I can see where this is going. We did. And then actually we took a stand and there was a clash. And needless to say, the, the meeting did not end on a positive note. Right. And he did not come back to uh, San Francisco ever again. <laughs> but, uh, and actually, he wound up leaving UGO not, not that much long after because mm-hmm. he had met his uh, buyout terms with Hearst and, uh, and it was no longer there. So it sort of defused the whole thing. Yeah. But yeah, that, those pressures are there. So, I mean, the, the point of all this story is, you audience, is, is you guys are right to question these things and don't, don't ever back away from that. Don't ever stop pushing the media. The media needs you to push them. As a matter of fact, good folks in the media want you to push us because you, in turn, give us the sword to go back to our bosses and say, see, you cannot do this shit. Yes. You exactly. cannot do this shit. This is why you cannot do this shit. Right. Because if you don't back us up on that stuff, if you don't hold our feet to the fire, we don't have any way to turn around and hold the powers above us to the fire. And then they get to come back and push on us on these things. So yep, preach it, G. And and it's this kind of incident. This is how <laughs> so we end, true. This is how we ended up with Giant Bomb in the first place. Was Absolutely, over that yeah. whole thing that happened with Kane and Lynch way back in like I feel yep. like it was oh four oh five like Gersman Gate. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> these relationships are always volatile. Like yeah, yeah, and we fight those fights. I mean, those of us in the editorial side, we fight those fights. And you guys out there and gals who listen to us, you give us the armaments to fight those. Fights. Exactly, because if nobody ever speaks up and says anything, if no, if there's no public outrage over this, then uh, you, when you go to your bosses and you complain about this kind of thing, you're by yourself. They say, oh, nobody cares. The yeah. audience doesn't care. So why should you care? That is Just exactly. Matter of fact, that is exactly the argument that UGO was presenting. Was that well, you're going to do this great job, and they're look, they're going to give you all of these assets, and it's going <laughs> to look so pretty, and you're going to have these great stories. And I'm like, except they're going to tell us what's in the stories. Yeah. No. Well, I, I started my games career at Sip Davis Media. So yeah. uh, I was uh, there at a magazine called Game Now, which was just before 1UP. 
And, oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I uh, had a personal experience with this. I won't, of course, mention the game, sure. but there was a top 10 publisher's game. It was a shooter on PlayStation 2 that I did a review for, and I gave it a D-, and I said, do not buy this game under any circumstances. And that publisher flipped out. And wow. they said, you know, you can be critical of our game, but you cannot tell customers that they should not buy the game, which is ludicrous. Isn't, isn't that what being a, uh, a media critic is all about? That, like, that's right. that's what the entire say. point of a review is right. whether you should invest your money in that or not. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with that point, but I do agree with the point that the author should be able to say what they want to say. Right. right. And, and at that time, uh, I got absolute support from Tom Byron, who's the EIC and John Davison. They totally supported yes. it. And yeah, and it was really important to have that to be able to say to publishers, we are going to write what we feel we need to write to inform our our. Right. Uh, uh, readers, and that's so important because, like, eventually, if you're not, if you don't have the integrity and you can't wear that integrity on your sleeve, it catches up with you. At some point, people start to figure it out and they start to go somewhere else. They start to look for that integrity from somewhere else. This is the truth. All right. So, having uh, gone from both sides, Ethan, now that you're now that you're in uh, mobile games production for Sega. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you let all of that uh, factor into the way you approach it, and what makes you excited about what you're doing? You know, what keeps you going, having been on the editorial side and now moved into development? Because this is a question I get asked all the time now as well. Sure, sure. Well, for me, Sega is a brand that has meant a lot to me since I was a kid. So, you know, the very first job I had, I was uh, 15 years old working at a Dairy Queen, and the first couple of paychecks went to buy Genesis that nice. had the Altered Beast pack. In, you know, <laughs> well done. Yeah. Uh, so when the Dreamcast came out, I couldn't wait for it to come out in the States, and I bought for $700 uh, an import Dreamcast, uh, you know, with one controller and Sonic Adventure and Virtual Fighter TV, you know? Right. So to be in a position now where I'm working with the guys that uh, have made those games is the most exciting thing. Uh, that's what gets me excited uh, and motivated. So even though I'm on the mobile side, so much of what I do is working with those Japanese teams that worked on the Dreamcast games. So when you look at um, games like Jet Set Radio, right? The, oh, I love it. The director, <laughs> you know it's a big fan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of my favorite games of all time. The director of that game is now the head of R&D for Sega's mobile games in Japan. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so uh, that is very good news. Yeah, I mean, these are the guys that are crafting the experiences. So back during the Dreamcast, that was a machine that unlocked uh, abilities to play that were not there before, like you know, playing uh, uh, co-op and you know, PvP games online and all that. And uh, this this is the same type of uh, thing that excites that kind of development team about mobile devices. It's a very connected experience, and so they're able to um, to do things that are not possible on other devices. And so the guy who created Typing of the Dead, which is a game that is unlike anything you've played before or since, right? Right, exactly. Um, that guy's making um, the game we've been advertising on your show, which is Kingdom Conquest 2. Uh, so, you know, his sensibilities are not about what can I make that's going to make money. His approach is what game do I want to play that's not on the market right now? And how do I make that game? And he becomes obsessed and he just is at the office like, you know, um, 80 hours a week, you know, putting together this game that you've never played before because that's what he wants to play and it's not there. So you're not just going to make an Angry Birds clone and call it good? (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're done. Sega's gold. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's – so I looked at Kingdom's Kingdom's Conquest 2 and one of the things that I found that immediately like – set me on uh, okay this is not your mobile games that you're accustomed to is that it Hmm. and then this is something especially we talking about being around conferences is there is a very different sort of mobile space on the other side of the pacific 
from the United States. And Kingdom Conquest 2 clearly reflects that. It's like it's like the first time you looked at lineage or lineage. You're like, whoa, what is this? It's super dense. I don't know what it's about. There's a lot of things going on here. I mean, Kingdom Conquest has a 3D adventure game in there that you're playing with virtual sticks. It has a city building game where you're building a castle and harvesting resources and managing people. And yet the two pieces are somehow pulled together in one engine. It's <laughs> super dense. You know, having, you know, and, and especially having been working on design, I was immediately like, Oh my god! I can't believe someone's making this game because it takes you thirty minutes just to get through the onboarding process. Wow. No one does that in mobile, right? No right. one does that in mobile. That's suicide. What are you guys doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. so, you just said a whole bunch of connected sentences that make me really happy. I'm definitely going to have to check this one out. Well, then that's just it. It doesn't look like or feel like what you would expect from a mobile game, and and this I, is this is about trust the creatives, right? Because okay. I'll be totally honest with you, Garnett. When we first heard this idea for this game, yeah. Everyone was skeptical. It, it was sounds like, this like can't work. It sounds like Ethan, a I'll be honest, pitch. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You know, having done this now for a couple of years, I would never have bought this game. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm, if someone's pitching me this game, I'm like, wow. You know what? I'll take a piece of it, and we'll <laughs> we'll do this and this and this and this and this with it. If you guys go with it, but I'm buy, I'm not buying this game. It'll never right. happen. But the guy who put it together, uh, he he was just insistent that this was the game everyone wanted. They just didn't know it yet because it wasn't on the market yet. And the original Kingdom Conquest was the number one performing game in Japan in 2011. It made more money than any other game in Japan. Really? On the mobile side, yes. Oh my God, I had no idea. Yeah. So what does that reflect? I mean, what are player habits like on mobile in Japan then versus here? Because this game is big and dense and... It is a sort of game that I wouldn't think is free to play because it is still free to play, mm-hmm. which means it still does have a monetization loop, which means it still does have a reliance on, you know, retaining players and getting them into the system and then figuring out how to monetize them. But it seems like it's an entirely different sort of approach than most of the way the Western mobile space, space comes out that. Yeah, it's really interesting because on the Japanese side, they the players revel in the complexity. They actually love that. Um, and they like to figure out for themselves and then share only with their team members how to do certain things. So it becomes uh, kind of a secret sauce, right? They don't share it. It's almost that uh, kind of Dark Souls monster hunter kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so as a result, those guys absolutely kick ass at the game, right? And yeah. uh, on our side, uh, we have to work harder on the community side to make sure that people understand the mechanics because here in the U.S., everyone wants to know the fundamentals of how to play yep. or know how to get that information. You want your handheld. Right, right. In Japan, it's kind of you feel almost like you're part of a secret society that's you know sharing these these secrets yeah so did you have to change that when you brought it over to a western markets to be a little bit more handholdy we did and there was a lot of interesting conversations back and forth between us and japan because part of the concern on the japanese side is well you're, you're letting you know the secrets out you right, know that right. kind of thing uh, yeah if you reveal too much of the experience then you know it kind of takes away from it a little bit right so so we were careful of that but at the end of the day there was a comfort level because the japanese players were really far ahead the game had been out longer uh so it it helped balance it that we could you know provide more information so we have on ign for instance a massive wiki and all of that right right yeah that's that's like uh that's like a a difference between the markets that before this conversation i never would have even thought about like you know the the different game playing markets and like releasing a game at completely different time periods purely for cultural reasons instead of just you know oh this is a financial incentive we need to region lock our game and release it in these different locations so that we have various release dates that can stagger out our income over the course of you know four quarters or something like that yeah it's you know uh it's interesting also how uh 
heavily there's this focus on uh, working with partners in these games where we have a lot of guest slots. So in Japan, for instance, there was a whole massive Game of Thrones event in Kingdom Conquest. Nice. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a, a 3D... Uh, yeah, oh, exactly. it was something... Part, uh, they partnered with HBO when uh, the, uh, the game was coming... Uh, when pardon me, the the show uh, had its DVD release in Japan, uh, and so Is the show big over there, uh, big enough, yeah, huh. yeah. And so uh, you know they did another thing with uh, a 3D version of the Ring movie when that came out. They did a, a cross promotional thing. So that's uh, that's becoming increasingly popular. I mean, Puzzle and Dragon, you see like you know mm. Batman's in there, Clash mm-hmm. of Clans, you know. Wow. So yeah. Well, P and D is on a whole other level there. I mean, that's <laughs> that's just continues to be completely out of control. So, if Kingdom Conquest Two is one game, you know that, that you guys have put out. What what does the whole Sega approach to mobile look like? What do you guys? So if it is developer driven, you've got this stable of folks. You know, you talked about it being related back to how awesome the De- Dreamcast was mm-hmm. and how the hardware was there. And now mobile seems to be that breakaway hardware that gives them something fun to play with. How's that coming through? Because you know, I wouldn't expect the Jet Set Radio director to make Kingdom Conquest 2. Right. What I'd want to see is something that's more, you know, uh, playful and colorful and, you know, has a more immediacy sense to it, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously action. So what what else is coming out? What else are you guys doing in that space? Well, again, with those guys, we we let them do what they want to do um, because that's what made them who they are in the first place, right? So funny enough, the the same guy that uh, worked on stuff like Kingdom Conquest and <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, we just had the first uh, producer note over the ear, over the headphones, and when you haven't had that before, it's a little disconcerting. You're like, wait, what happened? Someone's talking to my ears. <laughs> so the the uh, the same guy, um, Kikuchi-san, who worked on uh, Jet Set Radio and, yeah. and hardcore game like Demon Tribe in uh, the uh, mobile space. Uh, one of the games that he just recently released was a game called Go Dance, which is like Just Dance on a tablet. You know, mm-hmm. and again, totally different from anything you'd expect. But that's a guy who just does what he does and uh, we trust him and give him the resources to do it because that's how things work. Again, not everything's a big success when you do it that way, but yeah. we had a game in Japan that's called Chain Chronicle that um, was a massive hit. It was a top five title for a long period of time. And uh, that came out of a team that had come off of a really artistic, cool game called Samurai Blood Show that didn't work very well on a monetization level. Um, but we trusted those guys, and they wanted to build on that kind of core experience, and we just let them focus on making a kick-ass game. And after that gameplay experience was figured out, that's when we started talking about how we could may- maybe make this thing make a little money. you know. Yeah. And, and using that model, it's like if the gameplay is fun first, then people will come into play because they're excited about a great game, not about some addiction mechanic based on, you know, uh, kind of a, a gambling um, approach. Right, exactly. Or like, you know, buy a boost so that you don't have to, so that you can play more than once a day. Yeah. yeah. Let me exactly. tell you, monetization design is incredibly difficult to get right. You know, we just put out Song Blaster. I'm going to talk about that later. Probably it's my finishing move. And we struggled so hard with trying to integrate the monetization with the game because, Obviously, the first goal was to make a great, fun game. Yeah. And so then the question is, okay, how do you make a great, fun game that's free to play 
that monetizes. And you know, maybe I'll just go into it some. I mean, we looked at a number of different systems. We actually ran through three different systems that we put in and play tested and charted all of the play test results on and then came back to them and said, okay, like, A, is this working? And B, is it working from, like, a, is this working from a player perspective? And B, does it work from a potential monetization perspective? Of right. Yeah. And, and we had another one that we prototyped that just didn't work at all. We didn't even need to play test it. And the the challenge was this, like what we wanted to do was make the game first fun for anybody who plays for free. So fun for anyone who plays for free in this space has a lot of different ways of interpreting it. So many free to play games get that wrong too. that basic kind of fundamental thing. They just get it wrong. And we may have gotten it wrong. I mean, we're going to we're going to watch the players. It's, it's still a nut that everyone's trying to crack. I mean, yeah, but nut. but but at least, you you know, at least you at least your head was in the right place. Right. Garnet, right. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't get any credit for head being in the right place. You get credit for being it right. And so right. here's the way we here's the way we came at it. Finally, in the end was that we built a game. that was a really cool shooter. Well, a lot of really cool game. A lot of games that have really cool stuff. The really cool stuff is where they monetize. And mm. so you're earning some sort of in-game currency. Yeah. And the really cool stuff is priced increasingly expensive enough. That at some point in time, if you really want to get the crazy, awesome, uh, fantastic weapon or item, that you're going to either have had to ground to an unbelievably high extent or you're going to pay some money into it. Well, I didn't like that. So I said, okay, well, what if we take the pay – what if we take the cost curve on the cool shit and ramp it down – but create a system that allows people or that brings in the monetization into how they play. So it's sort of like an energy system. Well, we didn't like that either because the problem with an energy system is that at some point in time, you might get to that clash of clans point where, yep. well, shit, I can't play. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want anyone to not be able to play. So the yeah. way we ultimately wound up balancing this whole thing out is that you import songs out of your library and you can either use the currency earned in the game. Or you can earn, or you can use the hard currency, which we also reward you with the hard currency. So you can essentially buy some songs as well to bring into the game. And by doing it that way, if you have great, the, the, the more great songs you build into your library, the more you have songs that you want to keep playing, which then means that you're just focusing on playing the game. And you can easily open a number of songs to where you could just play the game without having to ever spend any money. So the reason we chose to go the way we did was at the end of the day, more playtesters were making it through through and above level 20, which, by the way, takes a good bit of time to get to because mm-hmm. the first five levels come fast, but after that, it really starts to ratchet up. Sure. We're getting through level 20, not having spent a dime and having a really good experience versus the other ways that we tried. And that was the final test for us and the way we went with it. But man, it's it's so... Trust me, we, like you, you sit there as a gamer, Francois and I like would sit there on on our design calls, and we would yell at each other, and then we'd like not yell at each other, and then we'd be like, "How the hell do we make this work right?" and and it is a constant source of stress because again, you you know financially you have to and want to be successful, but on the other side, you want about you want to have to make a great game, and you yeah. think you're, you're putting all the effort into making the game in the first place. You're not making the game to piss people off and have them not have fun with it. Exactly. Kind of ridiculous. Well, I'm actually that that's a, that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Garnet, like moving from press into game development, you know, like we always had an idea at one up and everything that oh, making games is hard, you know. Uh but what was kind of your <laughs> biggest surprise about like I thought I knew this was hard. All right, let me think about that. Damn, this is hard. Let me let me think about that for a minute. I'll carry you over on the other side. We can come right back to this. Uh we'll take our first little quick break. We'll come back on the other side and we can do that. And Ethan will have something to say about that too, because you know he did editorial Absolutely. and switched over as well. And it and it's a constant question. Yeah. Especially because so many uh folks 
have this uh, notion that people get into the media just to cross over. I always staunchly right. said I wasn't going to do that. And then, you know, 12 years later, it's, uh, <laughs> all right, pot kettle black, whatever. <laughs> uh, stick around. Weekend Confirmed will return in just a moment. Doghouse Systems launching their new and improved website at the end of this month. Launching their limited special edition systems. High-end powerful gaming computers. Best performance for value. Gorgeous graphics. High-resolution ironclad stability and zero-frame lag. Everything from lightweight laptops to robust desktops. Superior and personal customer service. Use code TGIF for a free weekend confirmed t-shirt and a $30 credit on SlashLoot.com. Go to www.doghousesystems.com to see which system fits your needs today. That was pretty fun. <laughs> hey, if you're looking for a computer to play that Daisy standalone, you could do no better than a doghouse system. Jeff and I both love our systems very much. As you can tell from us having fun with the uh, read there. <laughs> These are great guys. Make a great product. We both endorse them. Indeed. So there you go. You know the deal. Go to www.doghousesystems.com to check out their systems. You can use code TGIF for that free weekend confirmed t-shirt and your $30 credit on Slash Loot. And, of course, they have that new website that will be launching here anytime. So enjoy it. Check it out. New computers, too. New computers. I'm not ready quite yet, but uh, I, I, you never know. Sometime soonish. Nah, be the guys. I'm probably I'll probably be this fall for a new one, but they will definitely be. I'll definitely be going back to them. So there you go. Doghousedsystems.com. All right, continuing thanks to our sponsors, Doghouse Systems, great folks down there. That's in, still uh, my favorite ad read ever, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we had a lot of fun with it. We definitely had a lot of fun with it. All right, so the question of the move between editorial and game production. All right, yeah, so big surprises in your life. For what, me, what changed? So for me, different. Uh, for one thing, because what I was tasked with was establishing a entire uh, business from the ground up by myself. And yeah, because Gamefly, I, I don't know how many people know this, but Gamefly didn't have any game development business no. before you came along, right? No, it was basically uh, it was basically born from a lunch conversation between me and the co-founder <laughs> of the company, and uh, we pitched it to he pitched it to the board and got it funded, and then uh, said, "Okay, kid, go have fun." Oh Good man, luck. you got to eBay that cloth napkin now. <laughs> uh, um, and so. I think that the pieces that were let me talk about the pieces that were awesome because these are the pieces yeah. that really will keep me motivated in doing this are are number one the A and R part of it and you know that's uh, that's something that has been big in A and R in music for a long time uh, artists and repertoire oh, oh so oh. the folks who are the folks who are out um, in the music business finding the next big stars and that's really happening in the indie scene in in video games. And that translates into it's happening a lot in mobile. Look at and, Sony's presentation at E3. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And there is no bigger rush than seeing 50 people who are just have that, that spark in their eye yeah. and are making something awesome and are loving it and thinking to yourself, you know what? I might have the capability to help these folks make this and make it really awesome. So that's that's really that's one thing, and that I think that's a carryover from editorial. That's a carryover from having played and critiqued. I mean, look, what do you do in editorial? You you play <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games, yep, and you assess them and you and, and you analyze them, right? And you and you through whatever filter you have break them down, you know. So 
uh, for some folks, so we're talking about reviews. Some folks, the way they approach editorial is I'm going to make a buyer's guide sort of right. thing, right? And that's great, and we need that. And then the other folks, like myself, I've always been more on the uh, more uh, the, the academic, philosophical, like what's the design about here? Right. What's the experience of this game? And I'm making fun of myself intentionally because I don't <laughs> want to take it too seriously, but that's really the way I've always come at it. And so that tools, those tools, really serve me very well in looking at games uh, because. It's 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 a matter of as you're getting this picture in this game, trying to see into the game and like where what's the core here? What's this game about? Where's the creative spark and and all of those pieces, right? And well, I think is, that's why a lot of people in game editorial go on to do games is because the people in the industry recognize that that knowledge base is valuable. I mean, a lot of game developers will even say this to us. They've said it to us, you know, uh, pre one up, one up, and post one up is that uh, they don't have time to play every single game that's out there the way that you do if it's your job. Right. And that knowledge is valuable. It, it adds up over time, just like everything else. The next piece would be, and this is something you might not think about, and it, maybe it's not interesting, would be how very, very important the potential relationship between the developer and your role as a publisher will be. And by oh, that I mean... Right. As you're having these conversations with folks, this is their baby. Yeah. And so from my, from my standpoint, I have to be unbelievably respectful of that. And yet at the same time, they have to be willing to understand that, that, that their baby is not like a physical baby and that we may have to take the arm off and replace it with a rocket launcher. And, and that sounds silly. Sounds like but, an awesome baby to me. And so really the question comes to how well can you connect with these developers and how much of a two-way bridge can you build there? Because it's got to be a really strong two-way bridge. Yeah. It's got to be you – know, the Song Blaster exists because of this. Song Blaster exists sure. because I was at Dice two years ago. Adam Sessler came and grabbed me and said, you got to come see Symphony. It's freaking amazing. And so I went and saw Symphony, met with those guys, was like, this is awesome – and, 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 you know, not long after, because they were still ramping and finishing on PC version, mm. I was like content, getting a hold of them and talking to them like this, this would be great as a mobile game, but, but not the way it is right now. Gotcha. And, and okay. so, it, it worked well on PC. It and worked I remember, great on PC. Yeah. Jeff Mattis and I saw it on a, on PC a couple of years ago. We were blown away by it. And so, you know, one of the things that has been great about that was that, you know, Francois and Matt, who are the two principals of Empty Clip, were hundred percent open about like, yeah, like how do we do this? What do wow. you want to, how do we re, how do we redesign this? And we, we work together hand in hand to, you know, make an entirely redesigned game around that to make it right for mobile. And that's, that's, you've got to have that ability to work together like that. So I think that's really cool. Uh, and I and, think a lot of, and a lot of publishers, <clears throat> I think lose that, especially when they're working with people that are really strong creatives. They're so focused on the business side of things that they forget that they're working with people that, uh, yes, they do have a baby and maybe they're, uh, maybe they are receptive to the idea of it being a rocket launcher arm baby, but you have to manage that relationship appropriately. Otherwise it's, it really feels soul crushing. And if right. you, if you, if you crush the soul of a, of the people who are supposed to be managing your creative enterprise, then you you it results in an inferior product. One one thing that uh, working with developers can be really valuable on their side is that they are always so deeply focused on just the one game experience that they're mm. making because it takes so much of their time to do that. That uh, for a while at Sega, my role was creative director, mm. and uh, one of the things that uh, was was great was to be able to work with 
a team making, say, an action game and say, well, um, God of War does this and Ninja Gaiden does this and Devil May Cry does this. And, you know, these are the things that you may not have been able to explore deeply because you've been, you know, focused solely on this one game yeah. uh, and, you know, try to apply that. And, uh, you know, that's something that, uh, that teams appreciate when you can uh, bring that kind of just baseline knowledge to the table. You know, um, one thing that I will say, though, is coming from the editorial side, when editors will say things like, I, I, I don't understand why they didn't think to put cooperative play into this or something like that. <laughs> now I know firsthand that whenever questions like that come up, I can tell you that the publishing team and the development team, of course they thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that would definitely be. Yeah. So then you get into production stuff. Right. And production stuff. Wow. <laughs> I mean, just wow. You know, one of the things that I had to do, or one of the things that I did in my function was, you know, not only negotiate the contracts with the developers, but was write out all the production timelines and all of the pay milestones and all the sub milestones. And then, you know, at the same time, I'm also the guy approving them when the builds come in. Yep. And the reality is that, that all of that stuff has to be at, at the same time firm and negotiable which sounds really weird and yeah. really bizarre but by firm i mean that you have to be able to hold the the developers to hitting the milestones you can't let them slide because if you do you wind up with projects that aren't on time and become a train wreck yep. at the same time they've got to be negotiable and you have to while you're running this project be able to look forward and talk about okay how are we rearranging the milestones and at the same time taking into consideration what you're doing in production which is what ethan's talking about like there's stuff you got to cut yeah. And there's nothing that's more challenging. Like there are, there's so much in 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 all three of the games that we've made that I would love to have had in there <laughs> that I would love to have kept. That simply, you know, we had to make hard decisions, and you do the best you can, and you do the best you can with the mind of uh, what's going to make a great game. Yeah, you learn also how important it is to. Uh, to show respect to the developer because they're mm. the guys that are doing the real work, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so uh, one of the best developers I worked with was a small team um, called uh, Other Ocean. And so uh, one of the titles that... Uh, that We know Other Ocean. In fact, we put uh, Frank and Mike in. They were major features in our Kickstarter video. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. 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 Great people. So really good team. And they're the guys that we worked with to bring the first Super Monkey Ball to iPhone. Uh, which was nice. the number one um, title at the launch of the App Store on sure. iPhone. And uh, so we were uh, in a great position to work with Apple to announce that. Yeah. And when we were on stage, uh, we made sure that first, uh, it was me with one of the developers, we made sure the developer could wear his other ocean shirt, you know. <laughs> but on top of that, when we were talking about what we did uh, to bring the game to market, I made sure that the language on stage said, Sega and a development team that's been great to work with other ocean has been able to do this you know instead you of always... it just being a sake exactly right, yes. right right yeah and and speaking to what you were talking about garnet about like the stuff that you had to cut and you know uh, sacrificing your sacred cows and that kind of thing i think that's Dude, they're not they're not sacred see sacred cow has a certain sort of implication to it they're not just sacred cows they are they are pieces of design that you have worked into the game that you've worked up that you feel are really really important mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and you have to take a scalpel to them yeah i mean there are parts of there are parts of and you know in particular songbuster because i was really deeply involved in the design on it there are parts of it that uh that were really things that i that i've championed and brought into it that are not in the game then i'm just <laughs> that it's like i'm like god and i saw them in prototype of course it's just we couldn't 
achieve them and polish them to yep. the final product and make the timeline that we needed to make and get everything else in there and, and you make those decisions. Well, and we've done the same thing in the in the films that we've made. In the you edit know? bay. Like, yeah, and exactly, in the edit bay. There's, like, there's so many things where we go back and we look at our Street Fighter documentary or the Last of Us documentary and go like, man, I wish this was different. I wish we'd color corrected that shot a little differently or, you know, we never actually filmed this guy saying this so we don't have this line about that that connects these two story pieces in an ideal way. And then, you really have to get some distance from it before you can actually look back and appreciate that it was actually a decent piece of work. Like yeah. you know, we were with the we were with Naughty Dog for so long working on the working on uh, the Last, Last of, of Us documentary, and uh, I would talk to people constantly. You know, we'd go out to lunch or go out for drinks after a shoot day or whatever, and uh, be like, "So are you looking forward to the game?" They're like, "No." <laughs> when it comes out i'm totally not going to play it i'll play it like you know six months from now or a year from now but i'm not going to play it right when it comes out i am sick of this game like all i see is everything that's wrong with it yeah when when you're involved in like that kind of process like you're exposed to it for eight to 12 hour days and yep. by the time that six month cycle is over you just never want to see it again yep oh well think about the guys who spend two and a half years working on a console game that gets canceled oh my god yeah. that would have to be the worst feeling in the world uh, or, or, or even a game that's like left to kind of like just rot on the shelves. Like, yep. I, like I was QA testing for about four or five months on a James Bond Bloodstone, the mm-hmm. last, the last uh, Bizarre Creations game, and and it was just left to rot. Like by the time <sighs> the end, it was just left for dead. Which makes me so sad, so crushing. Yeah. I, yeah. Loved, I liked that game. <laughs> Love was too strong, but I liked that game. And interesting, <laughs> what Ethan brought up. So one thing that does happen is once you start doing development, you do hear a tremendous number of stories that would never get told you otherwise. It's course, shocking yeah. to me. How many large-scale development games have very, very, very late go/no-go checkpoints? Yep. Like what? Like, what, do, what does that mean? I mean, like, so we've already spent thirty million dollars on this game, but we're <laughs> right. not going to make it. Oh right! Oh my God! Yes, exactly. It's, it's and you, astounding. And like, uh, look, well, look at all the games that uh, Microsoft canceled just this last summer. You know, like things that we thought were coming out over, you know, Xbox Live and the and Summer of Arcade and everything, and it's just like axe, axe, axe. And it's like, I wonder how many things we don't hear about that get canceled. Mm-hmm. You know. I, a surprising, not a huge number, but a surprising number nonetheless, simply mm. by virtue of how far along they get. Mm-hmm. And then because of the the uh, accounting department, right. don't wind up seeing the light of day. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the rest of it then uh, starts to transfer into things that are not released. But production, production is amazing. Uh, yeah, amazing in the amount of work that it takes. You know, even just doing a mobile game, the amount of work it took to get just our two my, main characters from character study through first art to uh, and then refined up to final art. Yeah. I mean, it, it is an incredible number of man hours to get all of that stuff done. The same, likewise, you know, in-game assets. You know, you start off in your prototype and then you're into placeholder mm-hmm. and then you're then you start doing multiple passes to get it up to, you know, production quality. And it's just, a, it's a, a significant effort to especially in, you know when you're playing that you know producer role oversee all of those pipelines make sure all those assets are coming in at the time they need to be coming in so that they can get into the production pipe at yep. the right spot so that the game builds can come together so that we can get into testing so we can get the testing response back so we can go back to t- <laughs> like like running all of that machine is is a intricate work that it, that is it is fascinating yes it's not really that interesting I don't think I'm going to keep, that's not really what I want to keep doing, but having had that exposure to that now, I think was a really powerful experience also. Well, and and again, working on games that uh, you 
just you, let's just say you're not the target audience for right? for a long time. The first game, I, dude, I'm with that. Break frazzle. I wasn't the target audience. I mean, I bought it for a specific reason, but I had sure. to do all these things. Go ahead. I'm sorry, but uh, yeah. no, no, it's fine. <laughs> you know, perfect sense. The first product when I uh, was a producer yeah. at Sega that I worked on was Charlotte's Web. Okay. Wow. Yes. Wow. And that was for the uh, Game Boy Advance and DS and PC. And uh, huh. I remember when I got it, yeah. I was. Um, uh, really excited because I didn't care. It was it was my first game, right? And uh, so I said, you know, I can see this as kind of being like a Nintendogs meets, uh, you know, Harvest Moon type thing. You know, mm-hmm. we can do something with it. It's kind of tough because Charlotte's Web is like Terms of Endearment for kids. It's not really, you know, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. That just sounds awful. <laughs> right, right. And, and I said, you know, so sad. the one thing, provided we don't have to make a kind of just a, a you know, run and jump silly, you know, punch uh, animals thing, I think we'll be fine. <laughs> and I was told, well, guess what it's going to be? Wow. <laughs> oh. Because the template's been set, the engine does this, and right. so, you know, sometimes you make the, the best with what you uh, have, but you got to work for a long period of time on a game that you know is not going to come out and be a game of the year contender, oh, you know? Yeah. And that's that's tough, too. Yeah. Th- th- that's one of those games where, like, I, I think when, when you first apply to become a QA tester, like, you always have to go that one-week training period, and they always give you those kinds of games. They give you the Power Rangers <laughs> tie-in. They give you, they give you the, the Barbie tie-in, like, that type of thing, to, just to see if you can hang. It's like a right. recruitment yeah. thing. So I guess to to sum it all up, the thing that stands out for me and the reason that I am excited about hopefully continuing in this vein and whether it be, you know, mobile or indie or, you know, downloadable. Sure. I'm not sure that I would be in on big games, but I mean, I can always be convinced. Anyway, is that I think that more than anything, I have the having having been in the editorial and and had the audience both as my champion and my biggest detractor for so long. <laughs> right, has sort of built a, a a sort of sensibility to me that I can be the person who stands in the middle of the fight mm. and and absorbs it from the publishing, you know, from the executive level at the publisher and from the developer level, at, you know, top of the development house, and and that's a weird place to be. And, yeah. it can, and I, and just from having seen what I've seen, you know, having to hold those mind spaces in my head, that's an important role. There's gotta be someone in, in the building who's the champion for the developer. And that person has to be pretty freaking thick skin <laughs> and has to really have some steel boots to stand in yep. because if they don't, the whole thing's going to fall apart. And yeah. Well, you're getting crapped on from both ends. Yeah. <laughs> you're getting crapped on from both ends, but you also have this tremendous opportunity to be the keystone in the middle of the arch that mm-hmm. makes it work. Yeah, yeah. You have to uh, listen to the developers, but you can't go native either. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, that's what it's like. Uh, it's it's exciting and, and and exhilarating at the same time as crushing and and <laughs> like it's, it's it's emotions. Yep, it's big emotions. And yeah, I still love doing this part too. I mean, I I don't think that I would ever want to give up. Um, the, the critical element of watching the game business and talking yeah. about it with the audience and oh definitely yeah. well I'm glad you guys made such a go of it and you know like congratulations Thanks. on 200 by the way yeah that's yeah. amazing 200 that's so cool that's a uh, that's how long have you been doing it's like five years now right five four years something like that this one yeah, yeah. so this show started not long after I moved here it was yeah. April 2010 because we looked back at the first episode last week wasn't it 
I thought it was March. It was March, yeah. It was March, yeah. March of March 2010. 2010. So nice. almost almost four years to get to the 200 shows. Well done. Yeah, <laughs> a couple of, couple of shows before that at the uh, One Up Network. So yeah, exactly. It's been a fun run. How about uh, how about you guys with Area Five? Since leaving One Up, you have your big Kickstarter thing. Let's talk about the project. Oh, definitely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the the easy URL to remember is just bit.ly bit.ly slash Outerlands, and Outerlands is the name of the project. It's a video game culture documentary series. It's the kind of thing that we always wanted to do when we were doing the One Up show and co-op, and quite honestly, it's the kind of thing that we've uh, been jonesing about ever since we started Area 5, and now the critical mass of Kickstarter has kind of made crowdfunding a real possibility for this kind of project, because uh straight up it just doesn't seem to have a home anywhere else you know like it's just one of those situations where a um you know like the there's traditional video game media outlets there's traditional broadcast outlets and even online dist- distribution outlets they don't really know what to do with video game content i think everybody but no out there knows that oh man video games are huge we need to figure out how to make money off this kind of thing <laughs> Uh, but then when you go to them and you say, well, we want to tell really personal stories about big issues and small issues all across the spectrum of video game culture. And they and I think a lot of people who aren't into it kind of the way that we are and kind of the way that the people who listen to this show are, they don't really realize that uh, the audience wants these stories. They want to see themselves reflected in an honest and straightforward format and Really, the the best the best inspiration that we could draw for this kind of program is uh, this American Life, and uh, so the, kind of the elevator pitch is that you know it's a this American Life for video game culture, hmm. which is which is a really challenging pitch, right? Because <laughs> yeah. we don't typically think of that sort of uh, intellectual approach or that sort of high art approach to covering the video game space, and I think we all have begged for it, right? I feel I like, like we have. A life, a life well wasted. Well, oh, it's it, Ashley's thing's awesome, right? Yeah. Yep. It, it's what I feel like G four was originally aspiring for, wasn't it? Before it got turned into what it was. Um, G four had that they, icon they, show, they which did, was pretty yeah. solid. You yeah. know, for for a you know for a cable network television production. By that I mean it had to fit into segments and had you know the advertising spots and had to hit the way it had to hit. Yeah. It was, it was there were some good episodes of that. I think that what's exciting about Area Five doing something like this is that you really expect to see. I mean, look. Maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's partly driven by the way Netflix streaming has changed our viewing yeah. habits. Documentaries have become quite polished and perfected in the last few years. I think I that's mean, totally true. I'm I'm fascinated by the number of documentaries that I can just sit and be completely engrossed in. Because of how fantastic the storytelling element yep. has been brought forward. I mean, there used to be this idea that documentary, oh, it's going to be this dry thing. Right. right. Or that it needed to be preachy in order to reach an audience, in order to reach an engaged audience or something like that. And people realize that like, oh, all we have to do is show interesting subjects in the right kind of way, have some good editing and good production values and people and be will come on board. It. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think the one, and I was obviously really late, as this will tell you into this is, um, well, I guess Food Inc. caught me some. Obviously, yeah. it's really interesting. But the one that's really speaking to me as I'm just thinking about this is uh, Jiro Loves Sushi. Oh, Jiro man. Loves yes. Sushi, yes, if I yes. don't slur all that together. Uh, Jiro, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Dreams of Sushi, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, it, this is, I've watched it three times. It's, it's so, so engrossing <laughs> because you just, you just fascinated by by the manner in which it brings you into the story. It's beautifully produced. Yep. This person has this fantastic story to tell. 
And I guess that's sort of what the hope for Outerlands would be, right? Exactly. I mean, I, I not putting words in your mouth? No, you are 100% on point. Because look at Jiro. Look how obsessive he is about his art and about the culture that surrounds his art. And in video games, you don't just have the people that are making the games, you know, like Jiro makes a sushi. You have the people who love the sushi and the people who collect all the sushi memorabilia. Only in this case, you know, it's video games. Well, and, the, you know, the it, indie games, the movie, was, yeah. you know, had... a what seems like a similar vibe as well. And I it, love definitely. that. And it was a huge, that was also a huge inspiration for us too, of course. I mean, like we say it right on our Kickstarter page, like we're wearing all of our inspirations on our sleeves. We're not hiding it. You know, it's not like, oh, we're coming out of the wood with this fantastic new original thing. No, a lot of the formula we're, that we're putting forth toward this has already been done. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm disappointed that Jeff isn't here is because uh, he's such about, you know, the love of games and showing how much yeah. he loves things, mm-hmm. and that's exactly something that we're going for too. So, uh, so as creators, back at you, Jeff. how are you guys going to balance the input because you are you are definitely asking the community for input we versus are. versus the creative vision? Because yep. that's a really tough balance to strike, right? It is, but uh, I think we can do it in a really nice way. In the you know the uh, we're putting up polls throughout the Kickstarter to c- kind of get a. Uh, a backer view and a random audience view of what kind of topics that they want covered. And like the last one that I put up far and away, like the biggest one that's gotten the most response is speedrunners. Mm-hmm. And mm. uh, so speedrunners is a really awesome, really cool community of very, very active people that love these games and that seek out like the tiniest little minutia in order to get through a game faster. And there's like different facets of that community. There's, there's people that exploit glitches. There's people that do vanilla gameplay and everything like that. And, so for every person who's involved in a community, there's an interesting story to tell. And so for us, it's just about finding the best stories to tell around a topic, but we can take the community topics that lead us to those stories. Without taking us to film school, <laughs> uh, which means keep it to keep it to a digestible chunk. What? Yeah. So let's say you guys decide ultimately to do speedrunners as one of the episodes. Yeah. What does what does that wind up looking like? How does it come together? How would you guys approach it from a creative standpoint? Well, that's that's what documentary filmmaking is all about. It's all about being there. So you decide, okay, I'm going to contact a few people and then, all right, this sounds like it's going to be an interesting story. All right, let's go and let's go and film the story. And then once you're there filming, what happens is you go like, okay, we filmed all of this. Now we need, we know that we have story points A, B, and C, but we know that really to make this happen, we need D, E, and F. So we're going to have to come back later to film that part. Mm. So d- that's one of the things that makes documentary filmmaking expensive is that you have to go back. You mm-hmm. can't just like go once, get an interview, maybe suit some pretty B-roll and call it done. That's not how a story works. That's not how it comes together because that's not how life works. So maybe, I mean, would this be oversimplification to say that maybe you go to uh, this person who's going to do a... Uh, a Mario speed run. Right. Sorry, it just happened to be what comes to mind. It's sure. Like, so you go to the, you go there and you and you do the speed run and you're filming them and and in the part of and part of the process is is you get to know this person. There's almost like an interview happening. Yeah. And you come to find out that well, you know, part of their ritual is that they always envision how their speed run is going to work while they're riding their bike to and from work. Yeah. Um, on Wednesdays and go down the bayou because it has like these patterns to it and they start to see the patterns. Well, you didn't account for filming that. Exactly. And you're not there to do it during that time. So then you have to come back and say, okay, well, we want to do that because that's your story and we want to get that. Is, is, right. is that, am I on the right page there? 
you are exactly on the right page. Yeah, and there are, the, there are those <laughs> intangible elements too. Like, yeah. you know, take the, for example, the guy that finished Shocarina Time in like six minutes. Exactly. Like, yep. That glitch didn't just happen. That was just like kind of a spontaneous thing where it's like that, yeah. you got to be there to capture that aha moment yep. or at least the, somewhat the immediate aftermath of it. So there's also that factor, right? Right. And uh, that, that, those stories are inherently human because it's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, if we were just showing somebody running through Ocarina in time in six minutes, like that's impressive, but he's going to live stream that too. You that's can get a, you, that anywhere a, else. Yeah, that's a video. Exactly. That's just a video. So what? But if he's like, the, it, you get the story about where that aha moment came about. You know, like when we did the Last of Us documentary, uh, a lot of that was done toward the end of the development cycle. So there was a lot of stuff that we kind of missed. So uh, in our interviews, it was all about, okay, tell us the story about when this Genesis moment happened. And then it was like, all right, let's go back and find all the details about that Genesis moment and try to get people talking about them. All right, let's find all of the assets about that. And uh, in, uh, in our Kickstarter video, you know, we have, uh, we've been shooting with this couple, Sean and Meg, who uh, own a, the High Scores uh, Arcade Museum in Alameda, California. And uh, they're a couple that bonds over their love of video games together. They moved from New Jersey out to the Bay Area, to, and then they started this arcade there. But they are hardcore preservationists. They have a beautiful arcade. They maintain the machines. Meg is like the uh, the impromptu electrical engineer. You know, like she's all she's like breaking out the circuit diagrams and like repairing the machines and soldering them together herself. That's rad. That's yeah. really fascinating. Actually. Exactly. It, and so that's the kind of stories that we need to tell. That's the stuff that like it, you know people love video games. They in some ways uh, I think the love may even be greater than some that the people have for movies or for books. There's something about video games that draw people in in ways that other media doesn't. I don't know if it's the interactivity or the social aspect. It's probably a combination of everything. But anytime there's that kind of passion involved, you're going to find stories if you just go out there and look. And that's what we want to do. Pretty excited for you guys to have a crack at this. I, I really hope that your Kickstarter is successful. Share the... Well, we will have the link in the show notes as well. Right <laughs> but if you're just listening, here's the bit.ly again. Yeah, bit, bit.ly uh, slash Outerlands. Yeah, so it's B-I-T period ly then your slash and yes. then outerlands o-u-t-e-r-l-a-n-d-s there's well done. T- there's 21 days left in the kickstarter and they are at about one hundred and two thousand of their two hundred ten thousand dollars almost 50 percent yeah and, and an by amazing the amazing response so far it, it, it's also a tough call because you know we are thinking about how to continue the show and what happens to the next show yeah uh, and and Kickstarter is a tough challenge. I mean, you guys, I love that you guys were like straight up front about, hey, look, you know, like we're doing Kickstarter because we want to raise money and there's no better way to get the, the you know, megaphone to actually do yep. that. But the cost of the megaphone is all this stuff we're giving you is a big part of the expense of raising money with it. Definitely. So, I mean, like that's why we had, a, you know, originally we were going to put a bunch of like spreadsheets and all this other <laughs> crap into our Kickstarter pitch. Like, here's where all the money's going. And no, the art's way better. Yeah, yeah. We, we got braid artist David Hellman to draw a budget breakdown comic for us. I love that <laughs> thing. It's so pretty. <laughs> that is much better. All right. So uh, we've done enough of all this tomfoolery. I think when we come back, we should talk about some video games yes. that we've been playing. So uh, we can confirm halfway through show 201, we will be right back with the second half. This episode of We Can Confirmed is brought to you by Sega's Kingdom Conquest 2, the strategy MMO for iPhone, iPad, and Android. Kingdom Conquest 2 has an intense base of gamers and has been going strong since January 2013. It's deep and creative and free to play. It's a little hard to explain, but this might help. It was created by Sega's design teams behind Panzer Dragoon, Typing of the Dead, Yakuza, and Jet Grind Radio. 
The Sega designers combined a strategy MMO with a card battler with a hack-and-slash action game. Think of Kingdom Conquest 2 as equal parts Kingdoms of Camelot, Rage of Bahamut, and Fantasy Star Online, where you conquer real players and make them submit to your will. Bow down, real player. You can download Kingdom Conquest 2 for free at the App Store or Google Play. And for our listeners, Sega is offering a Kingdom Conquest 2 rare monster card based on Gilius Thunderhead, the mighty dwarf from Golden Axe. To get this rare monster card, just send an email to sega at kc2 at sega.net and ask for the Kingdom Conquest 2 Golden Axe rare card. They'll know what to do. Last week, we gave you the website rather than the email, so that's K, as in Kingdom, C as in Conquest, and 2, the number 2, at Sega.net. KC2 at Sega.net for your rare monster card. All right, so uh, after talking about speedruns, it seems only appropriate that we let Ozzy tell us about the Shack News Game of the Year. We unfolded our Game of the Year starting actually after last Friday's show. In fact, the votes came in like... A little before we started recording uh, the 200th episode and, you know, sadly it came like around the time of like all the bad Nintendo news and everything because coincidentally our game of the year is actually Super Mario 3D World. What? And, and, uh, <laughs> and, and Andrew put it, so, put it so elegantly that it's one of those things where, it's, where they just keep introducing new ideas. It's so much fun to play, play co-op. And really in terms of like a video game experience... For me personally, it's one of those things that reminds me of why I got into games in the first place. Wow. Why I became such a lifelong gaming fan. It's just a it's just a beautiful game all the way through. Strong uh, words. I love it. Legend of Zelda: a Link Between Worlds was number two. Came actually came in a close second. And with uh with a Link Between Worlds, it's I love the way that they re- kind of reinvented the whole Zelda franchise and made it live up to Link to the Past so well. And it's it's honestly like I. I don't. I don't know what what more I can say about it. We've gone into the, we've gone into it like in the past couple episodes, and I don't want to be too repetitive. Yeah. But our number three game was somewhat a little bit controversial, and that was Gone Home from the now, Fulbright company. How how is that possibly controversial for being in a top ten list of anybody's top ten list? Uh, and it's well, and, we're glad you asked. I'm glad, I, am glad, I am glad you asked me that. Uh, and I think uh, you know Matt Matt from Giant Bomb actually has been a part of our Shack News community for a very long time. He's been posting mm. and chatty for years. And I think he actually summed it up very well. And I'm going to read to you the post that he uh, placed in the Gone Home entry. It's been fascinating to see the response to Gone Home over the last year. I'm not sure I've ever seen a game that's inspired people to claim that people who enjoyed it were somehow being insincere. But I've seen that proposed by multiple commenters on multiple sites. My favorite was the guy who assumed that the game critics gave it an award at the VGX sarcastically. There's a weird and kind of sinister thinking behind a line of logic that goes, I didn't enjoy this, which means everyone who claims to enjoy it is lying or trying to push an agenda down my throat. Not that all discourse around games is the height of intellectual wordplay, but it's been fascinating <laughs> to see people hate a game to the point where they abandon all sense of logic or intellectual argument when talking about it. Yeah, it's isn't similar that, is, to Papers, Please, in terms of its divisiveness. Yeah, I, I've seen some um, posts about Papers, Please, where it's going like, it feels like work. Like, I don't, I don't understand the appeal <laughs> behind it. And... See also Cart Life. Yeah, Cart yeah. Life was another one. Actually, I I personally don't get to get the appeal of Cart Life, but I'm not going to begrudge anybody that enjoys it. I feel like I feel like Matt's post that you just read could almost apply to every game to the comments in every game review ever. Just about, but <laughs> well, but the the vitriol was really high because I read the comments on Joystick and I read mm. the comments on Polygon. The, there's a real sense of vitriol behind Gone Home for whatever reason. I don't know if it's the backlash from so many. 
you know, reviewers liking it so much mm. or if they really do feel like there's some kind of agenda behind the story that it tells. And I, I personally don't understand it, but I can only speak from personal experience. It's one of the best. It is one of the best games I've played all year. I love the. I'm a sucker for narrative, and it's part of the reason that I pushed yep. Walking Dead to uh, help push Walking Dead to Game of the Year last year. Hell yeah. So it's one of the most beautiful stories I've ever seen told in a game. It's... It, Which is why it's great that it's on the list. Absolutely, yeah. and yep. it, this is a, and, and the crux of this is the age old argument that I that I love debating experience as a piece of the game's valid validity versus the game mechanic. Yep, and Gone Home's thing comes down to what's my mechanic. You know, I think one of the big challenges is that the game space is so broad in a way that other mediums are not. So if, like, you know, Gone Home is like Mad Men, right? And Call of Mm. Duty is like Monday Night Football. And a free-to-play mobile game is like reality TV. You don't ever have uh, a television podcast or a television uh, website that talks about Mad Men, NFL football, and reality TV. That's a good point. That is a really good analogy. (laughs) Yeah, I really like that. I'm going to totally steal that. (laughs) It it, it actually kind of, you know, I was I was about to say that I thought it was kind of the trend of if so many people like it, then there always has to be a backlash towards it. There always has to be like a. But the way you put it actually is so much better. better. (laughs) Well, I mean, and we're we're on the precipice of falling into the uh, conversation that I don't really want to fall into about how. we seem to in video game and in our, in our enthusiasm for what we love in video games, channel that into also defensiveness for why they are right. And anybody else who doesn't, who likes something else is wrong right. and their thing that they like can't be as good as my thing that I like. And right. that's always a bummer. I'm, it, it I'm really much more the positive like, side. It really is kind of a unique thing in games. I, the other mm-hmm. thing I really liked about gone home is how, just how subversive it was and just how <laughs> you always go into like a scene expecting to see something, but it's just something else entirely. There's always that hint that it's going to be like some kind of supernatural ghost story and it never comes. It's just kind of playing with your expectations. Absolutely love that about the game. Yeah, that, that's what that's what everybody around me always talks about is about how it seemed like it was going to be such a creepy experience and then it turned out to just be kind of, you know, emotionally evocative. Instead. Yeah, and it, it teases it. It teases yeah. it throughout it and, and it never and it never comes. Just kind of plays around with your expectations <laughs> just a little bit. Well, again, I think there are gamers that love novelty and mm. gamers that love familiarity. Yeah. True. And Absolutely. That, that's complete. Both are completely valid, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, this is the type of game experience that's not going to appeal to somebody that really wants something familiar. They're going to play Assassin's Creed Four instead, well, know, and, and, which is fine. And the, and the awards actually did a good job of keeping up with all that. Swung back the other direction with four and five in Last of Us and Bioshock Infinite. I mean that those are those those comfort foods. Definitely. Even if they push yeah. you a little bit. I mean, Last of Us is not. Is not a comfort food like it makes you feel good comfort food, but it's right, comfort right. food and it's a it's a big time game that I understand how I'm, how I'm playing the game and it, and then I can just experience it. Right, you understand that this is a video game. This isn't trying to be some yeah. some different kind of experience. It's a game, and there's combat mechanic to yeah, it, and there's right. there's things that I'm familiar with. There's an exploration mechanic, and there's cover, right. and there's all these things that I that are, that are you know video game tropes that I'm like, okay, I know how to fall in all this stuff. Lots though. of fat loot that I can find everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Although it's really interesting that Naughty Dog says that they're going to go in a less combat direction with Left Behind which I'm really interested in seeing. Hmm. Yeah, me too, actually. That did get me much more excited for it than I was initially. I will agree. <laughs> and, and, and just the idea of trying to sucker clickers into taking out the humans is kind of kind of a fun idea. 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, the clicker parts were my least favorite parts of Last of Us uh, because because oh, of how favorite. how procedural it became. Right, it became very much a, a to me those game that that part pulled again back to that experience versus mechanic part. Mm. I think that people who love mechanics are in, in love the clicker sections of Last of Us because they are the Metal Gear Solid of the game. Mm-hmm. You 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 that, study, and that was me. I love the mechanic of it. That's why I love those parts, just purely because of the mechanic. Yeah, and and I was on the other hand of like. You know, when I'm playing the game, and especially when I'm facing off against the humans, although the humans are still defeatable in that manner, they feel more organic. Mm. And in particularly, the best part of the game for me was just being in this wasteland of what's happened to the world in this weird apocalypse that's happened. The exploration and, was so and, good. and exploring that world, and then at times feeling under threat from a, from a diverse AI opponent. As yep. opposed to the clickers who were very much set pieces. Mm. They were always arena set pieces. And especially late in the game, there are a couple of them that are just hardcore arenas. It's like, we here you are, you are not leaving this space. You must right. di- you must get here to here. You know, the 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 building where you have to get past the two big things to get yes. like that one, right? <laughs> that building, yes. Right. Okay. So that and then that's that then they sort of repeated that a couple of times. And I get yeah. it. It's because they wanted to give the player that experience. Yeah. And I'm good with that. It didn't mesh as well with what I was vibing on out of the game. Anyway, and, and I think that's a totally fair critique, and it's the one that it's the one that holds the most water to me. Other than people saying that just that they generally don't like the combat, but I think a lot of people when they say they don't like the combat, I think they're kind of focusing on those issues that you're focusing on. They just don't put it as well. Well, I love the combat with the humans. I think also because of the emotional investment I had, because every time I had to fight a human being, I was super consciously aware of the fact that. If I killed this person, I was killing one of the not so many humans left on the face of the planet. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, they're trying to kill you and you're forced into it. So, I mean, the, like the fact that you felt that, I guess, says that they did something right with those enemies, huh? Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is that as you started this uh, segment with a discussion on Gone Home and how divisive that was, yeah. a lot of the big, big games of this year have also been highly divisive. True. You know, Grand Theft Auto Five. there's been a surprising number of outlets that have not put it on their top 10, including Bomb. We did not. Shock News did there not. You go. Go. There you go. Uh, and yet it was my game of the year. There you go. Yeah. Whoa. yeah. See? Um, you know, another one, Bioshock Infinite, which, you know, to me, and all due respect to the hard work that the team did uh, on that game, was the most disappointing game of the year for me. Mm. Uh, and yet, there are a lot of people I talk to who say that they love it, and I can tell that that love for the experience is authentic. You know, right, mm-hmm. and, th- and that game for that game for me was it was a good experience, but it, it wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be at my at the top of my personal list either. Mm. Yeah, Infinite for me also was not a I wouldn't say it was the biggest disappointment of the year, but it certainly was in the disappointment channel. I I hesitate to say that because at the same time I enjoyed it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I felt like the turns that it made. Well, we talked about it a lot of turns it made. Anyway, so yeah. that was that was number five. Unsurprisingly, uh, Alice's impact kind of came through in six and seven uh, with Dota two, and then I think this one this one is the surprise. Number Proteus. seven is Proteus. Proteus is Proteus. Oh, Proteus is a wonderfully ambient experience. I if you've played Proteus, it's it's un, it's really unlike anything you've ever huh. seen. It's it's honestly hard to describe, but I honestly like the uh, the Atari twenty six hundred style graphics. I love that it's just it's an ambient world. It's escapism at its best. Mm. In that sense, I I can understand it. I mean, nice. yeah, you can't you can't beat the just sort of uh, back to that exploration thing. This ever changing world that you just sort of pop into and <laughs> and and absorb. So Do- Dota two was a twenty thirteen game. 
Yes, it, uh, huh. it, it came out of beta in 2013 around August, so it is a full uh, release. Yeah, wow. so the shock news, the shock news rules have always been that betas are not eligible for game of the year and yeah. then the year in which they remove the beta title becomes their launch year which makes perfect looked- sense to me it's just that dota dota's been around for so long right, like yeah. I, I didn't i didn't keep track of when it actually came out of beta into full release it's going to be interesting because this year uh, hearthstone is going to become eligible i would think mm. I'm, assuming it comes out of beta but they just went open beta earlier this week so Eight yes. nine, you guys swung back into uh, Fun Time Lands with mm-hmm. Pokemon X and Y and Rayman Legends. Good to see Rayman Legends in the top ten. Mm-hmm. I think that's an excellent choice. So here's what I got to ask about though: uh, Pokemon over Fire Emblem? <laughs> that's crazy talk to me. <laughs> okay, this, defend this, yourself. This is where I this is where I might get in trouble with some people. I did not play Fire Emblem. Oh, uh, okay. Do you have a 3ds? Of course, I have a 3ds. A, a, do you have a 3ds XL? I have Pokemon. What, yeah. 3DS XL? <laughs> One of the many great things about Fire Emblem. Mm-hmm. The 3D works 100% of the time in that game, as opposed to, what, the 30% that's in Pokemon? They, they've gotten a lot better oh, with 3D. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> they've gotten a lot better with 3D with the first party games in the last couple of uh, So last 30% working is, is good? Is it better? Yeah, it's better than it was. <laughs> better than it is for most games. Uh, uh, the, yeah, uh, Sh- Shane came in and he had Fire Emblem on his uh, Game of the Year list. So. Unsurprising. That, that is my favorite game of the year. Yeah. Really? Uh, by far. Across yeah, I all put, platforms? I put a hun- yes, I put wow. 100 hours into that game. Nice. I could not. Right now, right now, uh, over in Japan, Mark McDonald is jumping around going, yes, <laughs> yes, suckers. <laughs> I told Shane I was going to try a Fire Emblem. I guess I'll say the same thing. Uh, I will give it a shot. Ian, yep. you're the first person actually on the show to really have played Fire Emblem like crazy. So actually now mm-hmm. I want you to take the floor and tell me about Fire Emblem because I've actually, I want to be convinced okay. th- that yeah. I should drag out my 3DS or even convinced by it. I, I actually am just sort of surfing for an excuse to buy an XL. And right. People who listen to the show get pissed at me because they're like, come on, you've had plenty of excuses, but I just, I haven't been nudged over the ledge. I, I'm there sure. with you, Garnet. I don't have one either. And it's pretty much for the exact same reason that I just can't quite, it's still not enough of an impulse buy for me. And it's going to have to be that impulse buy before I do And I have it. the little one. Yeah. I have the little one. And then I look at like 200 bucks, but then they're 150. I should have bought it 150. I will, I will yeah. cop to that. Uh, yeah. I will, I will admit to you guys. I've been front about that. I, I just should have bought it 150. <laughs> well, I mean, the software lineup that they had this year is out of this world. Mm. You know, I mean, Fire Emblem for me is the top, but when you also look at uh, Zelda, you know, which it, you know, that that's maybe my number two of the year. That's a phenomenal game. Uh, you know, Animal Crossing. Uh, you know, there's there's just Luigi's Mansion, which was unbelievable. How how it can't be an impulse purchase is is yeah, hard I, for me to understand. I can't deal with Animal Crossing anymore. That that's in the past. I, I was gonna say I'm, I'm like so I'm surprised tired. that nobody really brought up Animal Crossing for game of the year, given how everyone was just so consumed by it. I loved it. Yeah. Oh, I'm so, so tired. So did a lot of, of other people. I was surprised that's why I was surprised no one said anything a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, and even even Pokemon. I I mean, it really is the best Pokemon game ever made. It's it's fantastic. So, But Fire Emblem specifically, again, I know people have talked about it a lot in the past, but the thing that to me is so compelling about that is just this idea that you have characters that are forming real bonds, they have kids that have the attributes of their parents, mm-hmm. and you get to play as them you know, down the line. It's generational. It's so much fun. Um, and again, it is the best strategy RPG ever made. I loved Final Fantasy Tactics and Jean d'Arc and things like that. So yeah, I was it, a fan it, of those too. I like those games a lot. If yeah. you like that, play the best one ever made then. Nice. How is it the best one ever made? How is it beat Tactics? <laughs> it's 
Well, for me, again, it's the, the narrative through line of the generations. Okay, so it's characters. not just the combat system. It, exactly. It's, it, the combat system is great. It's okay. really satisfying. Uh, you know, it's particularly satisfying if you play it in original mode and, do, and, and allow your characters to die. Because then the stakes, uh, if, you, mm. if you lose a character, they're gone forever. It's, it just makes the battle so intense. Wow. See, now I, I can relate to that because that was the way I played XCOM. Yep. And it totally worked. It totally worked for me. People thought that it wouldn't, and because usually I have a low frustration tolerance. But it, so it, do I. Yeah, it, it super clicked for me on XCOM because the impact mattered, and because mm-hmm. of, because it mattered, it materially impacted the way I tactically played each mission. Because you knew, oh wow, hold on, I've taken a couple of hits. I've got to. I've right. got to. I, it, like. I time to run away. Time and especially, to heal. and even more funny was because I had named everybody after people in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I can't lose, I can't lose Kanata. God, <laughs> I lose Kanata. That's gonna suck. I've already invested so much in him too. <laughs> I think everybody does that. As soon as you find out that you can name the players, it's like, oh, I'm gonna name them after all my friends. Like, no, Garnet, no. Ah, why'd you let me die, Matt? Why'd you let me die? <laughs> did you play the? Uh, did you play the expansion? I did not play the expansion. So good, really. Yeah, it's it's that typical for no of they know exactly what's missing in their game and exactly what expansion to put in to make it feel like how did this not have it all along like i didn't realize mm. this was missing until i was able to play it yeah it sort of felt like i had so wrung what i wanted to out of I XCOM thought that too that i was worried about uh, this is kind of stupid actually <laughs> hearing myself say it it sounds really <laughs> dumb i just was worried about you know, can I, can you come back again? I guess I was worried about like the hangover too. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. 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 You and know? see, I thought that too, especially because the expansion, you know, basically you start the whole game narrative over. It just has these new things right. inserted into the game. I was like, Oh man, I've played like 80 hours of XCOM. Why would I want to go back and start over again? But it adds in the perfect strategy elements to make the, to make the game compelling. It adds in new levels, it adds in new... Because now you have these meld canisters that you have to go after before they blow up, and the meld is a really important kind of rare resource. You approach every map totally differently. You're way more aggressive than you ever were before, and they give you those tools to be aggressive as well. So it really changes the game up. I understand what you're saying, though. Like, six to 12 months is a long time to kind of let a game marinate, uh, marinate, marinate and, then, and then kind of go back to it. Yeah. So, just because... A lot of a lot of it. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily age well. Like Bi- we loved Bioshock Infinite, yep. but you know, everyone I talked to said they were really disappointed with the DLC. Mm. And I'm I, still I, waiting for more. Yeah, and we're still going to be, and you know, we're going to be asking ourselves the same question again if we get the Grand Theft Auto Five expansion expansion in a couple of months. And but are you guys having a hard time going back to the DLC of like Last of Us and Grand Theft Auto with uh, PS4 and Xbox One in the market? I, I find it hard a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I can't. I, I loved Last of Us. I thought it was a great experience, but uh, I just have a hard time justifying going back to play the DLC just because right now I'm more excited about Tomb Raider and Thief. You know, yeah, uh, really anything that's next. Did gen. you yeah. play Tomb Raider on the on the old generation? I did, and I just want to play, play it again. again. I yes, I, I thought played, that was a great interesting. Game. Yeah. I played it on a I played it on a high powered PC, so I feel like I've already gotten next You've gotten gen that Tomb Raider. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I'm super minority guy because I got a PS4. Mm. And I played it a lot for a couple of weeks. And since then, I've been playing my PS3. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm, with, I'm with you. I've been on my Xbox 360 for, for, a, couple, for a couple of months. Well, now, ever since I've been I playing it. that and I've been playing a shit ton of stuff on Steam because all yeah. of the game, you know, so many of the games I wanted to catch up on are on Steam. Yep. And, you know, every so often I'll turn on my PS4 and I'll see uh, <laughs> all these freaking friend requests to people out there like why haven't you done my friend request i'm like well because i don't really turn on yeah, ps4 exactly. and, you know it doesn't really work right on ps3 because it's over the 100 cap and right 
yeah, so that's an interesting question. Going back to DLC, it'll be interesting to see how much DLC brings people back to current gen. It'll be interesting to see how much people go to current gen or old gen, as we guess we call it yeah, now. I guess so, right? This whole this whole year, last gen. Because we were just talking about it. I mean, there is not a lot of content still in the first half of this year. No. Well, I'm kind of sticking with it for like at least the first half of this year, just because I know South Park is on the horizon. So <laughs> that's definitely what I'll be going back to. Finally. Well, and I'll say something here that I know is going to make me an outlier, but uh, I think the most significant uh, next-gen feature by far is off-screen play, remote play. No, I don't I think don't, you're an outlier. I don't think that makes you an outlier. <laughs> not at all. People love it. Yeah, I think that uh, that has changed uh my life in terms of gaming because it used to be that i had to wait until 10 30 at night when the whole family was in bed to start playing games <laughs> and now i can go back to starting at 7 30 or 8 your vita up i yeah yeah so that and uh you know doing it on uh the wii u uh and i've been playing around a lot with the nvidia shield and uh their grid um mm. piece which is really really cool really really um, yeah yeah it's nice. it's really slick uh for me again it has allowed me to play 50 percent more of uh you know uh games than i was able to last year and that's just huge you know and so Definitely. i i haven't and the up- way that works is that your pc has one of their high-end video cards and the video processing is happening there and it's passing it out to you right it can do that but what i've been doing is i've been on their beta for the uh nvidia grid which is like on live Okay. okay. I was so say, I because yeah. I don't have a gaming PC. I have a Mac, so it allows me to do stuff like going home. But I I can't play like the big you know um, uh, PC games. Uh, but this this uh, grid technology is just great because now I feel like I don't have to go and buy a big expensive PC rig. Right. So is this going to be a subscription service? They haven't announced what the the payment structure is, mm. but uh, whatever it is, I'm going to pay it because it's it's, it's like PlayStation uh, yeah. now. Yeah, and it's really it's really interesting. Like because uh, whatever happened to OnLive? Are they even still a thing or is everybody just kind of eating their lunch at this point well remember on live went through that whole catastrophic uh, uh and litigated fallout and disaster where they fell apart remember they fell apart oh, I didn't, and, I actually and heard they about this. got rid of everybody but then they hired some people back and they wow. hired them back at a lower rate and wow. there, were a bunch of, there was a bunch of lawsuits around it i and i think actually after that the story just sort of disappeared because mm. on live as a consumer facing service standalone really was a was a was a fail yeah and and i think that the the misdirection of that and and the thing that's coming out of that right now is that people are i think and maybe i'll be wrong maybe i'll be wrong dramatically (laughs) underestimating the value of playstation now Mm -hmm. because gaikai went the other angle gaikai worked b2b Gaikai, mm-hmm. that's business to business. Yeah. Gaikai, Gaikai was and built a fantastic system yep. that was equal or better to online's performance and then gave it to a, a institution, if you will, in, in Sony's publishing arm that has a way to wield it in a much better manner than a standalone service. Yep. And, and, and it, it, I think it's one of those things that's uh, actually been driving a lot of PlayStation Plus subscriptions is that people we'll see how they put them together. It. Yeah, but on lives on lives miss should not be immediately just taken as a oh well one to one that means that PlayStation now is not going to work because they're right. wholly yeah. different and well and it'll be interesting to see how the competitors uh, do something to match that you know it's well, like right. You know, right now, um, I've held off for now on the Xbox One. I really, really want one. But uh, with you, when yeah, when they introduce some kind of remote player second screen functionality, which is inevitable, I think. You know, how do they do that? 
Um, well, they were showing, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, Halo 4, weren't right. they streaming? But I mean, how, how do you suspect that they will do it? Because one of the things about the Vita is that the, the Sony has this piece of hardware that makes a great second screen experience. Right. It yeah. has a great screen. It has controls. Right. It, it has thumbsticks. <laughs> it's like, it's, it is meant to be played. It's games more than on. just smart glass. It's not, it actually yeah, it's has not a smart glass. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Well, you know, speaking purely theoretically, and I honestly have no idea, you know, what their, their plans are, but, uh, it would make sense to me to be able to have that experience on uh, any you know Windows enabled laptop, uh, mm. it, it would be mm. great to be able to have it on a, a, a you know Windows uh, tablet. Actually, those are pretty nicely uh, designed pieces of hardware. I would I'm so invested in this idea of, of uh, playing remotely that I would buy a Windows tablet and an Xbox One on the same day if they supported one another. Wow! If they bundled an Xbox One and a Surface. I mean. Xbox One and the Surface would be interesting, but yeah. then you'd also have to have a controller that was able to connect to both. Or maybe, well, Bluetooth controller, though. Yeah. You know? Well, or you know, Microsoft has always used a proprietary wireless for their for their controller interface. Yeah. There's no reason they couldn't put that proprietary wireless into a Surface. Yeah. I mean, they could just put those radio frequencies into their Surface and have the it'd be like, hey, Xbox controller works with your Surface Pad. Bam. But some wirelessly. of that is but uh, some of that is market share too, right? I mean, the big reason why Smart Glass supports uh, supposedly supports uh, every tablet out there is just because of how many people have iPads. Oh, they have to. And they're like, yeah, we can't uh, we can't just pretend that people are going to buy other other Microsoft tablet software just to use with their Xbox. Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, you know, I'm just saying that when you look at PlayStation right now, yeah. you know, obviously long term they are going to be supporting all the devices. Right now they support just the remote play with with uh, the Vita and quick Quick story about uh, my experience with Vita Remote Play. This was just something that was fantastic to me. Over the holidays, uh, I uh, went uh, visiting my in-laws uh, who live about uh, a four-hour drive away from where I live in Half Moon Bay. Mm. And um, I brought with me the, uh, the Vita and at their house was able to play seamlessly the legendary battles in Assassin's Creed 4 off of my uh, PlayStation 4 at home. Uh, you know, through remote play. That's pretty rad. It was awesome. (laughs) And when I was doing that, I was just thinking, this is the future. And I I brought my 3DS. I was planning to, you know, play some Zelda and whatnot. But just the novelty of being able to play Assassin's Creed 4 uh, with a great frame rate four hours away. Now, part of it was the fact that they live in the mountains. And so, you know, uh, there was no interference in terms of Wi-Fi signal, that type of thing, which made for a really nice, clean connection. Um, The connection was actually better than the connection I get uh, in my condominium because there's a lot. (laughs) of interference in my condo. Oh, because all the clashing wireless. Exactly. Yeah, I have that problem in my apartments. Yeah, but I mean, you know, so the technology is not perfect, but when it works and works well, it's mind-blowing. And and it just changes uh, your um, ability to access your content. Yeah. Well, that, that is why everybody was so excited about online when they first came out, right? It's like, oh, yeah. I don't want to buy a new PC. I don't want to have a new console all the time. If I could just have all my games on any device, bam, done. And the Surface is a powerful piece of hardware because... We remember a couple of months ago, Andrew was running The Walking Dead on it. Like yeah. it, it can, it can, it can do some good it's stuff. It's relatively powerful standalone, but then that's the opposite of having it. You know, some sort of server-based technology that's yeah. in a remote location. I liked Marcus's suggestion from a couple of shows ago, where he said that Microsoft should pick up on live and just use them as their kind of answer to PlayStation Now. I I think it would be, and again, I don't know anything insider either. I think it would be safe to assume that Microsoft has is deeply researching how to uh, address its move in that space. And I'm sure watching closely what Sony experiences right. as they roll it out. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, there's no reason for them not to go to school on PlayStation now. 
Yeah. It's like, let, let, let PlayStation now come out. Let's see which way it breaks. And if it breaks the right way, you know, this is a company that, you know, the core of their business is built around things like uh, cloud services. Yeah. So they know how to handle all of that. Well, and this streaming uh, games, again, they're not perfect. I remember in our office, uh, we looked at uh, games on OnLive right next to a 360 running the same game. And, you know, a lot of people actually couldn't tell the difference. Hmm. Or if you could, the difference was subtle. Right. Uh, and so it makes me wonder, are those differences going to be significant enough to where people will always dramatically prefer playing a game off of their machine natively? Uh, or will it be like everyone's experience with Netflix where, you know, you have a PS3, for instance, It'll run Blu-rays, and the Blu-rays, full 1080p, they look gorgeous. They they look better than what you can get yeah, on Netflix. Yeah, no, no compression artic- artifacts, full color space. Right, except with Netflix, it's good enough, and right. it's so convenient that people, even if they have that Blu-ray disc of The Dark Knight, will you know possibly just flip it on on Netflix if it's available because it's just more convenient. For me, it's all about input lag. If that's cut down, I'm pretty much sold. Interesting. And I wonder how much the... Things we'll figure in uh, that are not just video related. I say that because for me, the reason that I kept discs, although I did cut back to only two a month uh, from Netflix, is that you get things like DTS HD sound. And, oh, and right, yeah. And when that you know for a movie, so I you know this this last week I watched Elysium, and and having that level of sound through the surround sound system really does change the experience mm-hmm. really does change it and and playstation games uh incorporate dts sound quite frequently and and, I, and they are noticeably superior to me to other soundscapes i mean like a game like the last of us the sound design and soundscape and just the entire production value right. and sound in that game absolutely phenomenal and a huge part of painting the picture of the game yeah, that, that kind of thing is really critical, and it's going to depend on, I guess, you know, just what you value most as an individual. I yep. mean, there are people that are straight up, uh, you know, audiophiles where they're, they're going to consider that like a really important distinction. And, you know, again, Garnett, I wish I had your sound system. It'd be kick-ass if I did. <laughs> yeah, me too. The, the, <laughs> I'm only an enthusiast. Maybe a file. My, I mean, I, I'm, I'm uh, probably most... I would say most people probably would look at me and say, oh, wow, you're an audiophile. And, and I'd sort of look at myself and go, no, I know audiophiles. Those people are insane. <laughs> I do not have a $10,000 Macintosh. <laughs> Though on completely the other end of the sound spectrum, I got to say one of the coolest features of the PlayStation 4 that I'm just in love with is being able to pop in my iPhone headphones to the controller uh, and have all the sound, you know, carry yeah. over. Because I, again, live in a small space. And if I'm playing something with shooting, no. it wakes my wife up. And it's yeah. just so nice. It was pretty cool. All right. So I guess we should wrap things up on the uh, top 10. You guys put Saints Row 4 in the top 10, but no Grand Theft Auto. I know. You know what? It, it ultimately ben comes Spite down Wars. to we had more fun with Saints Row. That, that's, that's, it's as simple as that. Interesting. You, wow. You playful ne'er-do-wells <laughs> just want to go get your we, kicks. We, we, we just loved the crackdown element. We just loved that it's pretty much hit the apex of what video game parody should be. And just it was just more fun than GTA. That, right. that's, all, that's all it is. Do you think it's like the uh, Zucker Brothers of, uh, of video games now? That's a that's a good way to put it. I think. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, that's uh, Steve Watts who wrote the entry for Saints Row Four. Actually, did compare this to the Naked Gun, so it's huh. not not too far off. Wow, Ethan just summing things up with one hitters here. I he's know, got the analogies. Right? He's got the references. You should just be a regular member of the team, dude. <laughs> well done. All right, uh, stick around. When we come back, we will uh, wrap this sucker up with the final segment of Show 201. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
that's uh, unfolding from the UK artist Etherwood on the uh, Med School Music label. Still, uh, still a one a couple more shows here for me to do uh, fulfill my dreams of music production, <laughs> music directing, and getting you guys great tracks to listen to. Man, that was a good song. That was really good. I love that. I, I do enjoy programming the music for this show probably way more than almost any other part of it sometimes. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we had some great conversations. One thing that's interesting about PlayStation now, of course, is the uh, bridge that it builds back to backward compatibility. Yeah. I was talking about how much I've been playing my PlayStation 3. The two big games I've been playing are Gran Turismo 6, unsurprisingly, which I really, <laughs> the handling model in that game is so good. I know everybody is like, oh, you've got to play Forza. Well, I don't, A, I don't have a one yet, but, right. but B, man, Gran Turismo is so on right now. It's like it's so good, and I love the way that they're bringing cars into the game and and bringing them bringing them in so like topically. It's great to have like the Toyota concept car immediately dropped in, and then you get to go play the seasonal challenge and unlock it and get it in the game. It's just it it really is is have, have a great driven, car experience. For have me. you driven the Lunar Rover yet? Have you done no, that? No, I'm not mission? interested in that. I just thought you might be interested. <laughs> uh, what well, I, I hadn't heard about this. What is the Lunar Rover? There, there's thing? apparently an extra where you can drive the Lunar Rover actually on the surface yeah, of the moon with actual like moon anti-gravity physics? physics. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. That's awesome. That's in the game. You go <laughs> tranquility base. Wow. And and the other one I've been playing is thirteen two, which which, which also is unsurprising somewhat. <laughs> Dude, thirteen two, and I've talked about it already, and I won't belabor it because I really wanted to use that to talk about the the lightning returns demo. But thirteen two continues to reward me. It's it's a really strong. It's one of the better games I've had that rewards me the more I play it. In other words, when I was first getting into it, it was. It was a little hard to get into, and it felt a little, you know, uh, a little like I think some people anticipate those Dash 2 games to be. But much like Ten Two, which remains one of my, maybe, I've actually said it, it's my favorite Final Fantasy for for its job system and for its lightheartedness and fun and just the, like, YRP are hilarious and fun to play with. And the whole game is just fun. The whole game is just fun. The battle system is great. The dress sphere system is great. The job system, the way it works is great. YRP are fun. And, you know, anyway, uh, that's not what you're talking about. Uh, the thing about thirteen two <laughs> is that the more you get into it, the more... It rewards you by understanding how all of its systems are working together. And the thing they've done is, you know, in in 13, they took the combat system down this realm that was foreign to people of, in Final Fantasy, you'd always been accustomed to, I'm going to select what my character is doing every time it comes up. So I'm going to cast a uh, Faraga, and then I'm going to cast a curaga and then i'm gonna i'm gonna attack with a sword and you were always like programming out all those steps and they had the active time battle system then you were managing things looking very tactically at okay i need this player to act and they're going to cast this spell and i need this player to act and they're going to take this action i need this player to act and they're going to use this item and you were you were hand managing each of those pieces and the mental shift you had to make in 13 was that you were going to juggle player roles which they called, you know, the paradigms. And I was going to have the right people in, and then the computer is going to magically make them do what they ought to do. And the, and the thing of it was that now the time is it's happening fast enough that I don't have time to go in and pick all of the individual moves. But what I really need to focus on are what three roles do I need out there right now? Do I need a tank to soak up damage and a ravager to do high DPS and a commando to maintain the stagger bar? Or do I need to have someone out there to buff and debuff? And and you're juggling those things very quickly. And so the idea is, okay, shift between these things really quickly. Have the right combat mix in there for what you're fighting at the right time. 
And can you can you change those roles on the fly, like in the middle of a combat round? Yeah, so that's the way it works. Oh, nice. So what you what you do is in thirteen, you set up your paradigm packs, and you have mm. six of them, and you have six to choose from. Then when you're in combat, and so you have to think ahead of time and go, okay, well, what do I want? And typically, you know, you have like a, a heavy attack team, you have a heavy defensive team, a healing team, and then like you know you have like your buff and debuff teams, and you know which ones those are, and you switch between them depending on who you're fighting. So sometimes you know, hey, this is just a monster. I'm gonna clobber. I'm just gonna go with my heavy attack team. I'm gonna <laughs> right. blow through them. And then other times you have situations where you hit a big monster or 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 a or a enemy that uses a lot of status ailments or something like that. You know, okay, I need a debuffer, or okay, I need I need a healer who has a Suna because I know I'm going to get hit with a bunch of status effects, and and so you're jumping between those things. Huh. Thirteen two adds in a monster capture system where instead of having three player characters, you have two player characters. And a monster that you've earned in battle, kind of like Nino Kuni, or very much like Nino Kuni, and the and the monsters develop within uh, within the one role. They can only have one role. So so a player could be any of the roles as they open them up. They could be a commando, a ravager, a sentinel, etc. But a monster has a role that it has, and it has certain elements of those roles as its abilities so you then now have to start picking well so which ravager out of all the out of all of the <laughs> ravager animals that i've or monsters i've captured which one has the elements of ravager that i want to have in my paradigm packs and then i put them into my group so that i can use them and you have three to choose from so you, now you're mixing things up even more and then you're developing them in a different way than you're developing your player characters so well, that's that all interesting. Super cool. And so it gets yeah. really cool. And the longer you get into the game, now you're developing this whole uh, monster collection. And your monster collection, you're developing them. And you're starting to think about like, well, okay, well, who do I want to have in here? And, and I've actually changed up theories a bunch of times of like, oh, well, I don't need a sentinel because I'm going to have a sentinel. Well, wait, now I have a good sentinel and he's got this, this, and this. Yeah. And I'd rather develop him and then not use uh, my, my player as a sentinel. Anyway. All of which leads to Lightning Returns, which if you haven't played yet, the demo is available now on 360 and PS3. And it's going even further down exploring this idea of how do you make Final Fantasy happen in an action space but still maintain its Final Fantasiness? And and the and it's crazy what they've done. They've taken Lightning and given you just control of her. Now, I don't know how that plays out through the rest of the game. I don't know if there'll be party, but it seems like if there would be that they would be just following paradigms as well. Mm. And then they've reached back in their history to that job system and they've made the jobs now more equated to what these player roles were before. So you have, you have these six roles again, you have the Sentinel and the Ravager and the commando, et cetera. And now think of those as jobs and think of them as jobs in, in, in the way that, uh, like in Ten Two, when you changed jobs, you changed the appearance of the character. Right. So now, when you switch between these, what you'll be doing is playing lightning and switching between roles to be in the role that's most appropriate for the immediate action you're going to take. Now the twist is that they've made combat real time and action based, and what you do is you go into the menu system before you're going to fight or just set yourself up, and you take elements out of that character out of that job and you map them to attack buttons so right nice so when you're in black mage role you can map faraga to triangle you can map uh blizza or blizzaga depending on how much of the active time battle meter you want to burn into another and and maybe just attack to the other one and block to another one and so 
you have three roles that you'll be able to switch between on the fly in combat. You can set up many more, but which three you have, and then set which group you have active at any time. Each one of those three roles has its own active time battle meter, which forces you as a player to switch between them. So in other words, you can't just say, I'm going to be a badass black mage and go into a fight and sit. Well, you could, but you're going to die. Right. What's going to happen is you're going to burn up. You're going to burn up all of your time bar for black mage. And then you're going to wait for it to come back. Right. But you don't have to wait for it to come back because you have two other jobs yeah, that you can switch with, with their own, with their own time bars. Now, take it the next phase and what you're actually going to do the way the way it works out very quickly is you're going to create the combos that you would have created with all your party members but you're going to do it by yourself because when you're fighting someone now you may switch to black mage throw an ice spell to freeze someone switch to commando hit them a few times to start your combo change and then switch again to the ravager role and blow them away with a high value a high value DPS spell. Wow, man. I'm so glad I was on this show because I had no idea about any of that and it sounds awesome. It's really cool combat system. It's, <laughs> it's really fun. Oh my God, it's so fun and cool. And and they added a block. So they've also added in like Whoa. this whole Dark, Dark Souls mechanic where huh. now you also have to, and admittedly, Dark Souls fans, don't panic. I understand Dark Souls <laughs> is way deeper and I'm just lifting from that the idea that if you block properly, then you get right. an opportunity attack. And they're adding uh, that right. element in here as well because that now feeds into your time management. So your time management is you're fighting in real time, you're watching your three action bars, and you have the ability to block and cause yourself openings. Yeah. Really cool combat wow. system. So, Garnett, I remember when uh, Mass Effect 3 and Uncharted 3 came out, uh, a lot of friends of mine who were new to those series um, decided, okay, I got to go back to the first in the uh, game series and, and build my way up to these these new games. Yep. With Final Fantasy 13 is now a trilogy. Uh, where do you start if you're new? Final Fantasy 1. It doesn't even, <laughs> it doesn't even matter. The, the I'm thir- sure it doesn't matter the at all. They're all self-contained stories now. Yeah, they're, because the rest even of within the- 13? <laughs> no, no, because I'm, I'm just saying, like, do you do uh, 13, 13, 2 and Lightning Returns? Or I'm do you doing just 13, 2 returns? for me. The whole 13, the whole, the whole canon of 13 <laughs> is such a wreck. I oh, mean, I'm sure it is. It is. It is the most hilarious level of Final Fantasy f- fiction foo that they have done yet. I, I, I've watched a, a, I watched a series of videos from uh, Noah Antweiler's Boonie, and he did he completely dre- he destroyed like the Final Fantasy thirteen mythos, like just tore it apart. Like it's, it's just, just it's just it's train wreck. It's so silly. It's gotten so bizarre. So basically, what it comes down to is there was a story in thirteen. And you thought you knew what was going on, but then you get to thirteen two, and it's all about time travel and you fixing the timeline because what you thought happened didn't happen. And they're really into, they're really into the whole, like you can change things in the past by changing things in the future and change things in the future and changing things in the past. And, and, but anyway, all of that is really not going to matter because the whole reason you're trying to say through all this in thirteen two is to save the world. But 13 lightning returns kicks off with, Oh, the world's ending in 13 days. (laughs) Good job saving the world in the last so, one. So, <laughs> and, and then it gets, and this is all in the videos. This isn't really a spoiler. And then, yeah. like, now it's completely into silly. Like, this is the funny thing is, I was, I already commented about this online. Like, you know, Lightning Returns might be the, like, the, like, a new, really great, awesome spot for the combat system. And it also right. might be the new high water for the absolute silliness of <laughs> where they go with the, with the stories and foo. Because Lightning comes back to the world as Jesus Christ. 
Wow. She's Jesus. She is she is the savior. She is the savior. And that is there she's the savior and she is going to save people before the end of the world. Wow. Well, if they can do it in Man of Steel, I guess they can do it in this. <laughs> you, you know, I kind of wanted to try and look for a Majora's Mask comparison, but Link didn't have a Messiah complex. No, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's so nutty. The whole, if you haven't watched the, if you, even if you're not interested in Final Fantasy or, uh, to go play the demo, you should go grab the, the intro video because it is so bizarre. You know, there's like this, there's this really, you know, if you're a romantic, the, like one of the underlying stories across 13 has been Snow and Sarah's love affair. You know, that's a big it's, – it's, it's, it starts in 13 and they're going to get married and, and Sarah is Lightning's uh, sister and Sarah is the one who's trapped in, in Crystal in the first game. And then in the second game, it's all around Sarah and Sarah is trying to free Lightning because Lightning's been <laughs> stuck in Valhalla. And, <laughs> yeah, You've See, lost is, me. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> this is when people get completely lost, right? <laughs> so now in this game, it, who knows what's happened to, uh, who knows what's happened to Sarah, but yeah. Snow, who's been like this, um, they sort of paint him as this, uh, crazy impetuous hero type who always charges forward he's a very very japanese prototype right right, right. charges forward wants to do right but is always uh, you know too impetuous and charging forward too fast so the game starts off with him presiding over this like prince 1999 party because the world's gonna end and he's just like hanging out uh, running this crazy party and there's this chaos crap who knows what the hell the chaos is the chaos is like the creeping doom that's going to end the world in lightning returns wow the, it, it, unbelievably silly all of a sudden monsters are just appearing out of nowhere and the whole party goes to hell and but the combat's good the combat's great and, yeah. this, and this sounds so cool and i want to play it based on what you're talking about but like Final Fantasy 13, the first one, when that came out, I think I got about four hours in, and all I remember is pressing X a lot, running right, down exactly. hallways. A guy with a bird in his afro, and um, <laughs> mothers are strong. That's, almost that's all a, I remember. That's almost exactly how much of that game I played. Yeah. They really have a knack for telling those stories, don't they? Because, <laughs> And I say this as a huge fan of Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> I mean, by the end of the year, talking about what's coming on PS3, you're going to have Kingdom Hearts 1.5 and 2.5. You're going to be able to go from the beginning of the story all the way towards the end. You're going to be like, okay, I had an idea of what's going on. I'm a little bit more confused now. <laughs> then you're going to play the 3DS uh, Dream Drop Distance, which leads into 3, and it all goes to hell. <laughs> I'm not going to play Don't even try. Don't even try and follow that story because it jumped off a cliff. <laughs> to, to answer your question, Ethan, I think that I, I would... I would hesitate to really recommend anyone play 13 unless mm. they're just really a fan of Japanese role-playing games and fan of fantasy. I think 13 yeah. 2 I can easily recommend because the pacing is much better. The way that the the way the time travel works out is that at each of the uh, spots, each of the places in time that you go to is a small contained area. And it really it's, – it's very staccato, but it works because it doesn't get bogged down in the – it doesn't let you get too bogged down in the, uh, oh, I'm going to get really caught up in the story because you don't really want to get caught. <laughs> not really working that well. You probably can't even if you want to. But I think you could easily just skip to Lightning Returns because it's clear that 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 they're just taking they're taking thirteen as a background world, almost the way a D and D campaign would be. You know, like remember you had like the world oh, yeah. of Greyhawk. Mm -hmm. right, like, oh, right, there's right. this world out here. Here's some stories that happen, folks. <laughs> I don't know, like they, they go together. No, they don't have to go together. Whatever. Right. Yeah, they've got some characters who are similar, and you know. Maybe this guy shows up. Maybe they don't. Maybe Saj that Saj was the guy you were talking about with the uh, with the with the 
Chocobo uh, baby in his oh, yeah. in his afro, <laughs> yeah. And there's so there's no carryover like Mass Effect uh, from game to game in terms of no. data. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess that is one comparison you can make to the Zelda series is that it all takes place in Hyrule, but they're not the same story, right? Yeah, but anyway, I'm, re- I'm re- actually even more excited for it now. So because oh, the cool. combat was really really fun. And, nice. and it's interesting because Ethan and I were talking during the break about what's coming out in the next couple of months, and we thought of February and didn't even register. Not much this. in February. March is going to be a good month. March is going to be huge. Yeah. March. Is, I, I was. I was saying during the break, March is going to destroy me financially. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you say destroy, how? What, what? What are you on to for March? Uh, there's well, Titanfall's in March, right? And right. Titanfall, Infamous. Did you uh, see? Yeah. By the way, did anyone see the leaked alpha footage from Titanfall? I have not. No. Oh, you guys. I, I mean, you, it's got a leak, right? There's no way that's. Oh, it's stuff been le- it's yeah. been leaked and pulled and leaked and pulled. The last sure. place I saw that had it up still was Daily Motion, who had, and they had like a whole session. It's it is crazy. Yeah. It is. It is absolutely. If I was in in deference to the fact that they are obviously the old Call of Duty vets in in large part, right? I would be very worried. Because it is, it is absolutely Call of Duty killing material. It it, it has that same speed and pace and yep. flow to it, but and the, then it adds so much on top of it. And the the movement around the world is just magnificently it's done. Insane. It is, and like you, you know, you watch people like you. You watch people play, even the demos that have come out right now, you can tell that what's going to happen is people are going to develop like these Tony Hawk style lines to move oh, yeah. around the map. You well, know, I watch this guy do this. So I watch this guy start off the game and he like comes out of it and it was just a, it was a, it, it seemed to be basically a, a team deathmatch sort of thing. Yeah. And I watched that, I watched him like run through the environment because he's watching his cl- his countdown to when he gets Titanfall, right? <laughs> right. And the first time he gets his time, he's running around, jumping all over the place. You have, the way the loadout works makes a lot of sense. You have a, you have a personal you have a primary weapon for anti-personnel. You have right. a primary weapon for anti-Titan. Yeah. And then you have a secondary anti-personnel weapon. So like your, your Titan weapon would be like a, a micro-missile launcher or right, something exactly, like that. Yeah. So you do have something to fight Titans with. So he's running around. He's like running up a wall, jumping over a sign, leaping between two buildings. <laughs> just basically like s- snipe running. Right. While he's waiting for his Titan fall to happen, right? Oh, so then he cool. gets the Titan, pulls down the Titan, hops into it, has a pretty good run with two other Titans as they're smashing through the lines where the where the enemies are. But then he gets aced because he doesn't realize it, doesn't he's not I guess but being new to it, hadn't caught on to the alert when a enemy hops onto your oh, Titan. Oh right, exactly. Yeah. And so he gets kicked out of his Titan, his Titan blown up. He gets his next Titan, but when he calls it in, he calls it in like across like a hundred yards away from where he is and has it remote commanded. So he uses it as a decoy to lure out this group that's inside a building. Then he hops in from behind, goes through the building and assassinates all the people who are trying to snipe his Titan so from the building, jumps out the window, hops in his Titan. Like, at this point, I'm like, oh my God, this game is insane. And like one of the things that I saw online was people bitching about how the the map times are short. And I'm like, I can't imagine playing a match any longer than a few minutes. It would be exhausting. Oh, my God. It would be exhausting. Mentally and physically. So there's no doubt that with games like Battlefield and Call of Duty, by far the most important part of the experience is the multiplayer. But that being said, with both those games this year, I still played through the campaign. I always do. I enjoy those uh, parts of the game. Uh, with I tried, I couldn't make it. Yeah, I, I can understand that. You know, they're just so short and snappy for the yeah. most part. But the thing is, is uh, with Titanfall, I I don't yet have a clear picture. Is it just PvP multiplayer, or is there some uh, equivalent? It is, no, it is just multiplayer. And okay. uh, then when you hop into a map, uh, you may not even feel whether or not you are in a multiplayer game because there's also lots of AI running around that either team can kill. 
and you kill the you kill the AI and you get attrition points and the attrition points like help your your Titan come back faster. Okay. And again, this is not a knock on the game because I think it's going to be one of the most important games we have this year. There's that's, that's system seller for sure. Right. Absolutely. And I can't wait to play it, but it does seem a shame to me that this game, which is launching an exciting new IP, doesn't have a campaign that allows you to build uh, what this world is. Right. You know, hmm. that's that's the one thing that I do regret. Like Destiny, it sounds like they're they're doing more in terms of focusing, a, you know, a, a world and experience. Uh, you know, it's it's a looser narrative, as I understand it, than what right. we've gotten with things like Call of Duty and Battlefield. But still, uh, a strong desire with a, the first title in a new IP to craft a world. And I wonder how we're going to understand the world of Titanfall without a campaign. I, and and I don't I don't have an easy answer for this, but I think what they would say is that it's built into the map design, even though it's PvP. And the Scenario design. Although, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. They themselves have come out and admitted that this game is not easy to market without a campaign. <laughs> because you, you don't get that theatrical trailer. You I don't see get to kind of yeah. give like, that window into the world. Like, yeah. it's, they, they've admitted that it's, it's been a little harder on them. Mm. Ethan, talking about uh, you know significant games for the year, it's, it's easy now to start to see the, uh, the progeny of Minecraft. And how, you know, this whole crafting thing has become such a big deal. I talked about Don't Starve a couple of weeks ago. I started playing Starbound this last week. Oh, nice. I I haven't gotten into that yet. You guys have uh, checked this out. I haven't played Terraria, so I don't have a comparing point. But it 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 is really reaffirming for me that this idea of crafting and and having resource gathering and recipes and all of that yeah. plays a really important role in the development of where game design ideas go in this in this coming year what do you guys think about that well, well it's definitely happened with me with rust you know like rust oh, yeah. it's a it's another game that's doing that kind of thing and it's a it's by the former gary's team mod uh, even though it's on the unity engine it's not on the source engine but uh, you know, you can harvest. You start out as a naked dude, and you harvest wood from trees and cloth and meat from animals to try to stay alive. And right now, it's just early access alpha stage. You know, the, how Steam does their early access right. thing. So is Starbound. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. Although interestingly, and this is what I've heard that uh, people don't grief each other in Rust as much as like they would in something like Daisy. Oh, like they totally do. Oh, did they? <laughs> no, I'm very wrong about that then. Yeah, it's... Uh, Dude, that's, Sean Elliott's been playing Rust. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they That's why they call it uh, the sociopath simulator. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, it's, it's designed to, like, basically you build up your base to try to survive, and then you get raided by other teams of human players who are trying to take what you have. Although, isn't, doesn't it make it a little harder for them to raid your house if you have, like, a gun on you or something like that? It does, but, uh, you know, if they roll up with three people that they manage to ally with, and they have M4s and Kevlar and C4 to blow through your measly little wooden door, then, like, yeah, you're not going to be holding out very long. Yikes. Unless you build your base right. Interestingly, Rust started out of love for Daisy, but they took zombies out of the game mm. yeah, they're on their way to taking it out of the game yeah like it, uh, they uh it's really cool thing with the rust development team is their trello list and trello is an online like bug pack bug tracker and development tracker for uh i guess software in general but a lot of people use it for video game development and their trello list is public and you can see that they are planning to take zombies out of the game they want it to be human versus human survival they still want there to be a pve element to the game they just haven't worked it out yet they just don't want to be another zombie survival game 
Because it's fascinating to see like how everyone would react like just in an apocalypse scenario, and everyone seem- nowadays seems to associate apocalypse with zombies. And yeah. <laughs> not the same thing. Yeah, like, exactly. If, if everything just kind of goes to hell, like how would humanity react? And I, and I'm kind of find it fascinating to see how it unfolds in Rust. Well, yeah, because like, and and every server kind of develops its own story and its own culture. Like grudges form, alliances form, people group together for protection, and then like one of your buddies gets killed, and your group goes attacks them. People like create situations where they go undercover on another team to pretend to be their ally so they can find out where in their base their C4 is stored since you can build your base however you want, right? And so that people realize, all right, well, if I go to this base and I use this many C4, I'm going to get this many C4 in profit. And C4 right now is like the resource in the game because it takes a lot of materials to craft and it's the only way that you can really raid another base effectively is with C4. That sounds fascinating and it also sounds like people being shitty to each other a lot. (laughs) Uh, Is there altruism in in the world? Are people nice to each other at any point? Oh yeah, it definitely happens, especially uh, servers who realize that if you go and you pick on the newbies all the time, you're just going to get people leaving your server and it's going to be dead. So there's huh. this there's this whole thing where, you know, the it's like the wolf taking care of the sheep because they want the herd to be healthy enough to go and then pluck. Mm. So, I mean, that that element definitely occurs, but you also get really weird stuff. Like on the server that we play on, uh, there's this guy, we were running down the road at night and uh, had our flashlights on so we could be seen from really far away. And this guy runs up to us uh, totally naked and uh, he's like, hey, 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 you guys, you guys, you guys, have you heard about private pansy's crafter emporium I'm like what he's like let me show you i'll take you there and he like literally set up a one-room shack by the side of the road and he's like yeah so uh we're here we're offering free crafting service for any materials and that's all he does is he just set up a shop quote unquote on the side of the road and he knows all the recipes so if you bring crafting materials he'll craft stuff for you <laughs> so, though, Matt, you would never in real life follow a naked guy to this little place that he's built for himself. I might if I had five dudes with M4s and Kevlar backing me up, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Great answer. Well, you know, you might like Starbound because Starbound has a single player component to it. And I think one of the things it's and it's interesting to see how different developers are approaching this thing, this thing in different ways. Right. Yeah. So they have multiplayer. With with servers, with official servers that you can Whoa. go and get, and you know, and, and set up however you want to. Nice. It's very moddable. Yeah, it's a two D game, and the in the background is static, but the foreground is all consisting of all of the environmental blocks. And right off the bat, the first thing they give you is this multi tool set in in a sci fi world mm. that you can point at anything, and it breaks it down into component pieces. Wow. So there, if there's a tree in front of you, you can use it to chop the tree down. When the tree falls, it cre- gives you all the tree pieces, but the ground pieces. All of them can be destroyed and they will yield different elements depending on what's in there. And you can sort of see based off the art style of them. It still has combat. It has like a Diablo sort of system where you equip something on your left mouse button and something on your right mouse button and, you know, you can use those. And the crafting starts to develop off of, okay, you know, a sort of uh, a Minecraft idea of I build a table. The table lets me have more uh, more recipes open to me and then I can craft more sophisticated things. All the environmental things come into play. So, for instance, I was playing a a, uh, a Android character, and he would be, or actually, he's a robot, so he's susceptible to the rain on this world that I'm on, or maybe <laughs> oh, the rain's awesome. acid rain, because everything's procedurally, <laughs> all of the worlds are procedurally generated. Wow. So they all have different flora and fauna and different threats and different things. And all I knew is every time it rained on this world, I was getting, I was taking damage. So I had to wow. build myself like a little hut so I could like sit inside my hut and craft, which was also valuable because then at night, you know, I could like have like an oil can with a fire inside. Anyway, all of this stuff around crafting and, and developing games it's 
Starbound's the first one that's really, really hooked me. Mm. And I don't know what it is. And I think maybe it's that I can play it in single player as well yeah. and just sort of have the player versus environment experience first. And I don't know that, that Rust would be conducive for that. I don't think no. you, could make, you could make a really a good... And, and the next thing about Starbound is then it has RPG-like elements in that there are quests to go on and there are npcs there are quest That's givers so, cool. so you're crafting the world and yet at the same time there are all these things that go now people who played skyrim are now like well duh right. you played skyrim. <laughs> I, you, I thought you didn't like skyrim garnet <laughs> well maybe skyrim needed more crafting exactly well and, and at some point you actually can leave the planet that you start out on and go to other planets can't oh, you is that how that it's not how? even at some point so that's yeah that's part of the deal is you start on it's you start on your ship and you're gathering fuel so ah, that your ship can jump to other planets and, and actually a big dynamic of the game is that you have to decide well i can't get all the resources i need off my planet i'm on right, right. now so i'm going to gather enough fuel so i can jump to another planet and get some more stuff there and then like which planet am i going to make like my home base planet and like what am mm. i exploring and so you really so it adds in that old like uh, the if you remember the old uh, 4x games yeah it starts, definitely. To get, it starts to bring in an element of the 4x games where you're out exploring all the universe as well you're saying all the right words again i love this and it's infinitely customizable apparently as someone's already doing like a massive uh, mass effect Re- reskinning of the whole thing for it so it's <laughs> going to be amazing. very like civ like yeah. <laughs> and i think I they've already it. i think they've already had their final their uh, last character wipe right so everyone should be good to go uh, the well i don't know the beta the front page of the beta still says that you should expect that character wipes may happen okay mm. it, it's coming it's coming soon it's supposed to come with a uh, a permadeath and a drop everything on death update it's like, Whoa. like game mode, so it's, it's gonna get Ooh. brutal permadeath <laughs> permadeath would be really tough uh, yeah. no, this is a game you. by the way you guys who listen also be surprised this is a game that i started I tried to pick up and play the other night and I was yeah. like, oh, I can't do that. But I was intrigued enough that I actually did what you have to do to play this game, which is go read the wiki. <laughs> go read the wiki, read the getting started guide a couple yeah. of times, and then it'll maybe start to make sense when you go play it and you're like, oh, things are starting do, to click to me now. Do you feel like you should have done the same thing last week with, the go- with uh, nope. Don't Starve? No? Nope. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone. Can you bother me? <laughs> okay, fine. Going back to Starbound really quick. Uh, will you be playing it when it comes out don't, on PS4? Don't Starve, is, don't Starve is final and it's a ps4 game and for whatever reason i'll tell you that i have a different mental spot when i sit down in front of my computer and play a game i expect for it to be a little different than when i sit down on in my couch and play a game there and i think that you could still do this sort of crafting centric exploration game in in a couch experience but i want my couch experience to be a little different than what it is when i'm sitting up and forward at my computer okay will you be playing starbound on ps4 when it comes out well they haven't have they promised ps4 they said they would like to uh, I think he, they said they would like to make it for other platforms. Yeah, we. I think. Uh, yeah, they said it about like six, eight months ago, something like that. So, um, back know, in August. At, at this point, I picked it up on PC. I'll probably still play it on PC. It's great. On it's a great PC experience. I think that there's a lot of stuff. It it it, it it's relying on a lot of hotkeys. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot going on where I think that this would, I mean, you could controller map it. I actually did pick up the controller to see if they had done controller mapping on it. I think it would be fun to play in controller, but I think also having a keyboard handy would be nice right so it seems like it'd know. be a hard translation to a console not hard scheme. i think they could do it okay yeah i think they could easily do it especially because like with 2d games i'm just like most i'm i'm just used to playing on a console yeah more, more, more and the combat is the combat is really fun the combat is classic 2d combat you know with enemies having different patterns and you learning how to like fight them based off their patterns so nice. i think you, it it has a lot going for it starbound uh i can as as an early access though well down the line i can easily recommend that if you're intrigued by it that it's well worth hopping into okay all right well we will hop into our finishing moves to wrap up episode 201 it's the weekend, and it's time for Finishing Moves! 
All right. Thanks for sticking with us. We will let Ethan kick us off. So now working with uh, development teams, one thing that really surprised me was just how carefully um, all of the team members in just about every game I've worked on look at the feedback on their forums oh, and yeah. on Facebook. Yeah. Okay. So if you are deeply invested in any game, whether it's a Sega game or something from someone else, um, you know, if you're in, investing a lot of personal time posting on Check News or NeoGAF or whatnot, uh, that's a great place to have a good conversation. But if you take the time to go to the developers' forums, go to their Facebook page, be part of that conversation, that's where the developers are looking every day. And they make big changes based on the feedback they get there. So be a part of those conversations. And that makes sense to me because uh, I feel like whenever you look at feedback from a community, the people who take the time to write in, you always assume, well, there's got to be, you know, who knows how many other people that feel this same way. It's just that yep. this person felt strong enough to take action. And we, we're doing that with Outer Lands too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we're totally taking the feedback from everybody about topics that they want to see or the style that they want to have. And I've gotten some great topics suggested from people that have just written to me directly on Twitter or through email. Like the, there's a University of Maryland that has a completely student-run video game symphony which would be a great topic for Outerlands. And I never would have gotten that without somebody telling me about it. So it's the same kind of thing there. Mm-hmm. Is that your finishing move also? Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> Bitly slash Outerlands is the URL. <laughs> finishing move. Well done. Uh, and I also am on the, hey, go get something I made tip today. Uh, <laughs> Song Blaster, our third game out available in the uh, Apple iTunes music store, or I guess the app store, as we would properly call it. It's free to play. It takes your music and turns it into a shoot 'em up. It is a, uh, we made it with Empty Clip, the studio Empty Clip who made Symphony. This is the PC game. We completely reimagined it. Hope you enjoy it. Would love to hear back from you. Song Blaster for your uh, iPhone or iPad device or iPod awesome. Touch if you have fourth generation or later. I, I, I didn't make anything. <laughs> but, 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 but I do want to credit someone that did. Uh, Shack News User Fuel has done an awesome thing and has compiled like an entire list of uh, every Shack News Chatty user's Twitch stream. So it's, oh, a, it's, awesome. a, it's a wonderful interface. If, it's, if someone's streaming something, you'll see it like up on the left-hand corner. On the right-hand side, you'll find highlights. I've actually started uh, posting a feature, hopefully to do it every Saturday, where we're taking three of the particular highlights and posting them for everyone to kind of watch and enjoy. So that's a really cool feature that we're getting started on Shack News. And the other part is, the other part of my finishing move is, I want to actually ask for a little feedback on this. Because I was talking with Nicole yesterday, who's going to be on the show next week, about The Walking Dead Season 2. And she points out that not a lot of people have been talking about it as much, you know, kind of as much as Season 1. And Mm. the reason I wonder why that is is because are we kind of afraid of spoilers? Like, do we not (laughs) want to spoil the experience for everybody? So have we reached that kind of phenomenon in games where everyone's kind of like the equivalent of binge-watching? Is everyone just going to wait for the end of Season 2 to come out and then just run through all the episodes at once? I'd, lo- I'd love to know what your feedback is to that. I'd love to know that if that's a thing that you're waiting for, if that's the reason that you think we're not talking about it, or if it's simply just not as good as uh, Season 1. Good question. Excellent question. All right, well, as you heard, coming up next week, Episode 202, the final episode here at the Atlantis Group Studios. We'll be uh, thanking them uh, much more then. But yeah, you guys have been a great, great, great hosting partner. have done a fantastic job engineering the show for uh, over 200 episodes wow. now. This is a great so, studio, too. It is a really great studio. So these guys have been fantastic. Uh, they do a considerable amount of video game voiceover work. So if you're in the game development community, please do reach out to uh, John and Micah and the rest of the team here. They are fantastic at the, this place. They've got a great studio, great environment to work in, lots of voiceover experience. Uh, next week, 
Jeff Kanata will be here, hopefully. I'm sure he'll be back for the show. Je- Je- Jeff Kanata has a bet to pay, I believe. He has a bet to pay. <laughs> I heard about this. <laughs> we'll, have a, we'll have a final tailgate next week. Uh, we'll have uh, Nicole here. We should have Andrea here. We should have Zav D'Amatos will be here. We've invited, uh, we've pretty much invited everybody that we can get our uh, word out to. I believe Christian is going to be here as well. Christian will be here. So it'll be a big celebration as we uh, wrap up our time here at the uh, Atlanta studio with Weekend Confirmed. Um, that's it. Thanks. Big thank you to Sega, of course, for having Ethan down. Much appreciate the sponsorship. Much appreciate having you on. You're a great guest. Was thank fantastic. You. Love someone who understands the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> great luck to you guys, Matt. Uh, much love to the Area 5 one-up brethren. Hope you guys do fantastic. Cannot Thanks, wait man. to see this video. Cannot wait to see Outerlands. Uh, really, you shouldn't hesitate to support this. This is this will be something that these guys have a proven, if you proven watch, track record. If you watch the <laughs> I Am Street Fighter documentary, it's the same guys. They've done great work. Yeah, the, the whole that whole documentary is up for free on YouTube. Capcom put it up there legitimately, so go watch it. Legitimately, yeah, <laughs> awesome. Uh, okay, and on that Thanks, note, Garnet. folks, uh, have a fantastic weekend. That is your weekend confirmed, and we are ghost. This podcast is brought to you by Doghouse Systems. Get the best performance for your value with these high-end, powerful gaming computers. Whether you need a lightweight laptop or a robust desktop, Doghouse has you covered. Go to www.doghousesystems.com to see which system fits your needs today.